Hey guys, Joe Miles here with Osseo Gear. This is the Mission Whitetail podcast. We're going to be doing a deep dive into what it truly takes to kill these mature bucks. We're going to step outside the box and look at the why for gear, tactics, training, and more importantly, the mindset from over 35 years of chasing these magnificent animals all over North America. Thank you for following along and welcome to Mission Whitetail. On our first episode, we're doing something really unique. We sit down with the guys from GBRS Group, and guys, if y'all don't know who they are, you need to look them up. These are some of the baddest dudes on the planet. They're medically retired SEAL Team 6 operators and just incredible guys with a wealth of knowledge. And we wanted to see what it takes to operate at really the tier one level and how that can translate over to improving your whitetail bow hunting game. So we are absolutely pumped about this first episode and cannot wait for guys to check it out. All right. Um, so I want to welcome everybody today to, I think, what is going to be a, a fascinating and dynamic discussion between two uh, groups working together on seeing how they can come together with hunting and some military tactics. So maybe we can start with some introductions. I'm not going to take that away from you guys. Joe, why don't we start with you? Joe Miles with Osseo Gear, um, and it's a camouflage clothing brand that we've had for two years and uh, pretty technical, pretty excited about it. It's made for whitetail bow hunting. And um, I've been in the bow hunting game for about 35 years. It's my passion, um, something that I've, I've grown up doing and, and really enjoy. And uh, we're trying to take this brand uh, to all the whitetail bow hunters um, out there. And, and so far, the first two years, it's gotten a tremendous amount of support, really good feedback, and uh, we're excited about where it's headed. Joe, maybe t tell us a little bit as we start with the introduction, maybe what made you focus on the camo line based upon your experience with bow hunting? Well, the, the thing that I really saw, um, there, there were some real high-end technical brands out there, but where, where they were really lacking was in the, the camouflage space, and especially for tree stand bow hunters, um, for, for the whitetail guys. And I was able to do quite a few sheep and goat hunts and, and use some of this real technical stuff. And I knew that we needed to bring that quality of gear to the whitetail game. And the camouflage pattern, what was going to what was going to differentiate us from that, and, and really help improve the whitetail hunter success, and so that's what we did. Great. All right, so over here, uh, GBRS, Cole, DJ, why don't y'all kind of give us a little bit of a background about both you individually and maybe the company? I know most people probably already know who you guys are who are in any type of uh, watching these types of podcasts. But maybe a little bit of background. I'm Cole Fackler. I'm the COO of GBRS Group. I was medically retired about a year and a half ago. Um, from the Navy as a SEAL uh, my entire time. I grew up in right here, actually. Um, and best friend over here, we decided uh, after we were medically retired to start a training, consulting, tactical company. Um, and kind of like Joe was saying, um, looking at the industry and knowing it and being in it for so long, you just naturally see gaps. And you not only want to make better gear for the end users, but I mean, give back and make sure that they don't have to learn the lessons the hard way that you did. Um, that's me. Yeah, I'm DJ Shipley. Exact same background, like almost to the T. Same amount of time in the Navy, 17 years, got medically retired. 
SEAL Team 10 together kind of all the way through. And then we started a skateboard company when we first retired. And I don't know, it was just like, we missed it so much. Like just being around the boys and the atmosphere and just all of it, training in general. You know, we started the training company and COVID hit. We had to adapt. So then we started doing a lot of product design and development. And really it was just, it's kind of the thing we were talking about. We, we sit in a room for so long complaining about the same thing. It's like, well, right now we've got six months unfiltered. We can just, let's change it. Like, let's sit down, with, let's make a better mousetrap. Like that thing that's been, that's almost killed us all these times. It, the slightest little detail could have fixed it. And we just never did. We didn't have the time. We have the time right now. So taking that forward, trying to make a better camouflage, something for the end user, because it's what you were consumed with for your, you know, for most of your adult life. So it's trying to take that, the whole knowledge transfer, just really focusing on the details of everything you do and trying to make everybody all better overall, I guess. Really? Yeah. Okay. Humble to be here. So you, yeah, some knowledge transfer, maybe tell us a little bit more about kind of what that means to GBRS and what you're trying to do. Maybe the mission of GBRS. Some knowledge transfer could be uh, summed up a bunch of different ways. I think uh, some people think it's just another way to say teaching. I'm just, I'm telling you how to do something. I think we've seen a big difference in telling people how to do things and teaching people how to do things. And really it's the details, like the, the context, the emotion, the, the understanding, because you've had to live it for so long that you've taken that one thing. If it's, if it's how to tune a guitar, it could be anything. But if I sit down with Eric Clapton and I asked him to walk me through tuning a guitar, the detail that dude would go into it would be like nothing you've ever heard before. Like, and I know it would because that's all he does all day long. It was like the level of detail. If I was going to try to make you a Jedi, trying to make you as good as I possibly could, how much detail would I give you? All of it. I'd give you the detail you don't know you need. I think that's the thing we do is we tell you the thing you don't even know you need. It's three or four years later, you come back and you're like, that's why he told me that. Okay. It's I mean, like you save people. For, you save people years of heartache if you just <clears> give <throat> them the details. I think part of the knowledge transfer too is a lot of people teach off of theory. They don't really have any real world experience. They just, they're teaching off of something that they've learned. And what we're doing is, yes, we're teaching off of theory, but something we've actually experienced. So we're connecting reality with that thought process and theory and connecting it with reality. And people are like, ah, and I'll steal this idea from DJ. He always says it. But it's like, if you're going to teach your kid how to bike ride, like really just teach them to balance, learn, and like just, just ride their bike. Like if you obsessed about it, it's like the weight shift, like the seat height, doesn't matter you just took their training wheels off or not. But if you get consumed with it and break it down to so your four or five year old can understand, it's like, that's the detail we're talking about. Again, theory, but you're connecting with reality with it and your experience. Like, I mean, some people, some people argue that, you know, you don't need that much. You don't need that much detail. It's like, oh, you know, you're, you're going way into the weeds. Well, when it's life or death, we teach based on I'm never going to see you ever again. There is no part two. There's no part three. I'm giving you everything we have on day one that I would you get in five years. And I think that's the thing is anybody who's ever trained with us, you don't forget it just because of the passion the instructors have and 
the level they're willing to go to try to to teach you because they realize what the end state is. They realize how high you have to be able to perform to survive some of these things. So it's, yeah, man, like I'm going to give you every ounce of this detail because I'm not expecting to see you again. And if you never do, if you retain anything, you'll retain something of this because I'm going to keep harping on it over and over and over. And if you data dump everything, you'll retain something. You'll retain this. So, yeah, I think knowledge transfer, just it's a good universal concept. Because at the end of the day, I think if you take out the combative aspect of it, the firearms aspect, the mindset, if you take out all of that, I think we cover universals better than most people. Like he's talking about like, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to teach you CQB so detailed in the training methodology that you can overlay it to teach your eight year old how to ride a bike because you don't look at it. It's like asking, uh, you ask a long range guy, which cold boy shot? Well, I know you're an amateur because you just asked me that question with the environmentals. Like what's the altitude? What's the, what's the round? What's the barrel length? Like everything that goes into it. It's like, you're not even asking the right questions, man. We're not even on the same topic right now. It's like being able to do that. Just, it makes people a better instructor. That's really what we want is we want you to take whatever your skill is, whatever your passion is and sit there and spend a lifetime molding it and making it your own, have some ownership and accountability for what that thing is. Don't just regurgitate it because he said it, because Cole's better than me, and it's whatever Cole says is gospel. I just say it. No. Take that concept, your experience, and sit there and polish this marble for as long as it takes until you understand every aspect of it, and then I transfer it to you. It's not a regurgitation. It's a transfer. Like, this is everything I have. Here. Like, that's not a transfer to us. Wow. Yeah, that's great. So maybe hunting, military, and kind of some of the tier, you know, what you guys do may not uh, immediately make sense in working. But Joe, I know you've had some experience, and kind of how did you get together with these guys? Yeah, so, th- so that was it. We, we, there were some issues going on, and, and I really wanted to learn uh, some, some self-defense type stuff. And I contacted DJ and Cole, and they set up a, a course for me to come up and, and do some training with them. And, when, when I got in here and started doing that and, and saw, you know, kind of how they operated, how they worked on things and, and the, the, the paying attention to the smallest detail of every little thing that we did, you, you know, I just said this absolutely equates to what we do when we're really bow hunting at a high level. The, the mindset we have to have, um, the, the obsession over the details and I, I learned a ton, obviously, about my pistol, concealed carry, um, tactics. But, but I think not necessarily more importantly, but, but to coincide with that, the, the actual ability to take things to the next level. I mean, you guys did, you know, SEAL Team 10, and then you went to DevGrew and, uh, you know, the highest level. I mean, you know, you, you look at Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, what you guys did and the the knowledge that I took home just from a daily perspective on whatever you're doing that that's what was just it, it was it, it blew me away and I literally I think the first time I came up was in July whitetail season started in August and and I caught myself numerous times saying you know no this is the way that needs to be done you know whether it was cutting a limb down or or you know getting fresh batteries for a trail camera, changing arrows out, whatever it may be. And 
I had my best whitetail season ever. Now, you know, there's some obviously some luck that played into that, but I was super disciplined this year and and really paid attention and and upped my game. And so I saw, I mean, obviously it's apples and oranges, what you guys, you know, did do as far as the military and and going after, you know, highly dangerous people. But the mindset and the way you approach things is very parallel to what we do at, at a high level of bow hunting. There's, I don't think there's any question about that. Yeah, I think one of the things I heard you mention a couple of times that I think you learned from them was mission planning, right? Mm-hmm. What does that mean to you kind of, and how did you get that from these guys when you were up here? Yeah, you know, so, so mission planning for whitetail is when, when you when you get to a level where you're really after the, the top tier deer, um, you have to have a plan. You just can't go out there and haphazardly go into the woods and think it's going to you know, come together. I mean, you've got to have a plan from trail cameras, how you're going to get in the woods, where you're going to hang your stand. I mean, it goes endless. And, you know, you said to me, you need to get mission planning for, for whitetail. That's, that's what we can help you with from, from a, from a mindset perspective. Well, I mean, you know, you're already doing it at a super high level. I mean, these, these hunts you do, I mean, that's world-class expedition style stuff. So, you, I mean, you already do it, but a lot of people don't have a, a formula or a metric to transfer it to the next guy. Like I'm just super successful because I'm, I'm OCD about everything I do, but sometimes you forget the things you do naturally. Like I have to tell this dude all the time, like we'll be teaching something and he's ambidextrous and he forgets that no one else can do that. Like you're doing it so fast. You have to slow it down and really show them because you can do it both hands. Like the normal person can't. And he makes it look so effortless, Mike. You don't realize how hard that is what you're doing. Like the details you go in with the hunt, we kind of back it up like, I want to be in this position covering this swath at this time. And we back it the entire timeline. Well, how long does it take me to get from my house to the point where I exit my vehicle? Well, 45 minutes. Well, now it's school on a Thursday. Now I've got school bus traffic. So now it's going to be an hour. Because if you miss it by 30 minutes, you know you. It's over. It's, it's over. Yeah. Like it's that planning. Like, you know, amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. Like you didn't equate that 15 minutes because you're out of fucking gas. Like a pro would have known that I was at a quarter of a tank. That's an hour long drive and I'm going to have to stop and get gas. Well, those 15 minutes just blew out my entire season. Yep. You know what I mean? Like I've been stalking this thing for three and a half weeks. Thanks, honey. No, I couldn't push my the lawn right now. I have to leave. Now I've got gas scented on my shoes. You know what I mean? Yep. Like every detail, it all matters. Like my wife washed all my hunting clothes and tied. I can't go hunting today. Like a layman, I'd throw it on like, ah, I'm just going to send it. We no. can't send it. It's no, not worth can't. it today. Like not cutting out that one limb right now. It won't be better tomorrow. It won't be better on Wednesday when he gets in your stand. It still won't be clear. Now I've got to lean over. I've got to take this random shot. And now I miss like I just blew a three week essentially mission because I didn't want to spend 15 minutes. I didn't want to save it today and go home and get my song, come back tomorrow, do the prep work. It's like, that's what I wish I would have done my entire career. If I had a time machine, I go back, I'd redo it all. I'd be more detailed. I'd be more meticulous. I'd be more purposeful in everything I did. But yeah, it's like, that is the mission planning. It's all the things that you don't think really matter until you have to be there at 1201. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, you got a thermal shift with the with the wind, and, and there's there's so much we could go down a huge rabbit hole. But but that is, you know, with, with your mission planning, our mission planning, it is the details. It is absolutely the details, and a lot of guys miss that. You know, and and yeah, you you don't you know. Guys will say, why do I need to do that? I'm going out to my tower stand and my blue jeans and my white T-shirt. And that's absolutely fine. You know, guys do that all the time. And, yeah, yeah, they, they get a deer here and there. But when you're going after a seven-and-a-half-year-old buck that's seen every trick in the book, if you're not doing that, you, you good luck. It's not going to work. Yeah. Well, I thought what was really cool is we were talking yesterday, and even some today, Cole, when you were talking about the pants, right, you know, as – it strikes me in the parallels between the two, particularly listening to y'all talk. And again, and again obviously, there's a, a difference between what y'all do versus hunting. But it is it is the details. And maybe if y'all could talk a little bit about some of the gear stuff. I mean, we've seen what y'all do here. You know, we were lucky enough to get a tour of that. But again, talking about the pants or DJ, you were talking last night about how you tie your shoes. You know, it's that level of detail that sets you up for being quiet, your scent control, your environment. Maybe if y'all could talk a little bit about that, I think that would be great. I think a lot of it boils back down to um, your training, but your mindset of your training. Um, it's very easy to sit in your backyard and pull your bow and shoot. Same, sit on a flat range, flat-footed, and shoot. How about you think about that buck that you've been stalking the entire season every time you pull that bow back? How about you train with every piece of clothing and gear so you know how it functions for the right temperature and weather? You're not guessing it. You know exactly where to slip in rangefinder, whatever. Because if you think you're just going to slip it in and it falls, and that hunt's done. Yeah. Um, and and just knowing your kit and why you're picking it um, for whatever situation that you're kind of setting yourself up for. I mean, the obsession on every detail. Um, I'm brand new at bow hunting, and I still haven't <laughs> pulled one yet. But just in in relation to you know, our prep, it's it's the training, it's the mindset. When I'm shooting every round, I'm thinking about not only protecting um, everyone around me and covering their backs, but going home to my family. And it's not, uh, it's not time to try something new on game day. Like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like the reps, it, and it's not just rep, it, reps, it's the perfect reps. I see it, I see it a lot. You know, guys will go in, with, with half the stuff they need. And if, if they would say, okay, I'm training today with my bow because I'm going to be hunting a 200 inch whitetail, you know, a giant, an absolute record book deer. And if they took that approach, you hear it all the time. Oh, this big deer showed up on camera, on my trail camera. I need to go start shooting my bow in the backyard. I need to put some silent tape on my lock on stand. I, I need to get new arrows. It's passed you by. You've got to have all that geared up. So every decision you make, is you're after the 200 inch deer because if you if you take that approach when he does show up you're going to be ready you know you're, you're going to be in the game that's one of the things we talked about last night like the visualization like you can paint a lot with the conversation like if i had never seen a deer i've never been to a zoo i have no idea what you're talking about but i really want to shoot one like i really do like I, i've seen one in a picture but i've never seen it by the time i actually get to that point I'm going to be so amped up because I don't know what I don't know. I think you could solve a lot of that with super in-depth training, like all the stuff he doesn't know he needs, like to really paint it, drawing it back and anticipating the buck fever to set in. Like, 
understand what that's going to feel like to let them know like your heart rate is going to be at 180 dude it's going to be so when it happens don't be surprised like you're not freaking out you just settle take a breath like you know you can hold that bow at full drawback for a minute 40 before you really start to feel fatigue like you've got time just chill take a breath but as you're talking through it every time he's burning realistic reps like how many times do you sit there with that thing drawn back and just you're a pro so you can calm yourself down but i can't like, I don't know what that looks like. You've got to paint me the picture. And if you paint it really detailed, it's like I'm there. It's like you can make training so realistic that at a certain point up until said act, like he's not going to know the difference because he's prepared for it. It's like we can shadow box for, for a long time. Once we start sparring, we get better and better and better. And then when game day finally comes, like you put everything together. Yeah, I think the visualization, like that's a, you see skydivers do it all the time. Like in the plane, just every everything they're about to do like eyes are closed and they're going through it in their mind every ounce of it the timing the cadence everything it's like visualization is a huge thing for me we did a video recently on uh new jackets and basically kind of went through every step of mag reloads concealed carry you know drop leg carry and the problems that you can run into and again it goes back to knowing your kit it's like don't just get a new piece of kit which jackets piece of kit you think it's just going to function the way you want it to and we walked through all kinds of drills it was like mag changes like well the sleeves really long like the sleeves are really loose like i'm catching on my draw or i'm catching on my mag mag change and you got to drill it you got to train it so when that that moment comes whether it's a buck or anything um got to be able to perform at your highest level yeah, I mean, you can't you can't assume because somebody said it on Instagram. Mm-hmm. You need a heavy arrow with forty percent FOC, and so that's what you shoot, and you've just completely weakened the spine of your arrow, and you don't have a clue. But this guy said it, so you you take it. You, you got to test it, mm-hmm. and you got to ask yourself why. Why am I using this particular stand? Why am I walking in this particular way at this time? And and if. You, you, I mean, I've made every mistake there is to make whitetail hunting, and you are going to make mistakes, but you've got to have the plan, and you've got to say, why am I putting, why am I doing every, why am I tying my shoes like this? Why am I putting my pants on like this? Why am I hanging this trail camera right here? And have a plan in place and, and execute the plan, and then if it fails, you, you know, you're going to learn from that, file it away, and next time it'll get better and better and better, and and that's you know, if you're going to be self-taught, you know, that's the way really to do it is to ask why, make a plan and execute it. And, and that really works in the, in the whitetail space for sure. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head too. People just see it on social media or Instagram. And like, well, that, that works for them and they're world-class. That'll work for me. Um, or people will send pictures of like, this grip is really messed up. It's like, well, maybe that guy's hands are like broken. Like they're really messed up or shoulders or different things. And thinking um, everyone's kind of um, technique will always be perfect and work for them. It's like they discount injuries and maybe a non-dominant eye. I have no idea what a non-dominant eye looks like shooting a bow, but I'm sure you could break it down yep. same way we do. So, How big of a problem is that for you guys? I mean, how often do you have to deconstruct someone that comes in with an idea of how to do it because they've watched it on Instagram? or been trained by someone who maybe wasn't proficient? For CQB, it's pretty easy. I mean, you just can't argue with it. Like, that just comes down to reality. Like, would you do that if I was in there with a pistol? 
Like if I fired three rounds to that door and I walk back and I say, come get it. Are you going to do that same thing? The answer is no. Then don't do it right now. Like it's not Instagram. It's not, it's not YouTube. It's not some kid playing call of duty. Like that's real, man. Like you're a police officer going into a super bad cartel house and they're going to shoot at you. And if you don't take that right, they're going to kill you. And if you don't do what you need to, they're going to kill him. Through bullets, man. Like, you can't fake that. So we have to play it like what we'd actually do. So why do we even solve the conversation? The grip stuff, like, I don't care. You can hold that pistol however you want to. I'm just saying if you don't know how, try this way. Try really holding on that gun. Just from a guy who, I'm normal, man. I'm a human. I get scared. And if I have to shoot somebody, I'm definitely scared. Right? Like, if I'm at 7-Eleven and some dynamic situation happens and I have to pull that pistol from underneath a t-shirt and shoot someone. Every ounce of my being is going into that grip. There'll be no 60, 40 split. There'll be no, it's just not how reality works. It's just not, Oh my God, I'm swimming through layers of t-shirt trying to pull out a pistol to save everybody. I'm going to grab that pistol at hundred percent. I need to, especially if I'm inside of this range because if that big idiot grabs me when this gun comes out, be the last thing I ever do. If he takes that gun from me, it is over. So that's kind of the school of thought with 100% grip. I never said anything about having two hands on it. You're thinking flat range shooting from the seven meter from the surrender position, go. I've never seen that. I've been in a couple and I have never <laughs> seen that happen. I've never seen a shot timer overseas. I've never seen it at 7-Eleven. I've never seen these cop shootout debris where shot timers go off. You're not gonna know. You're just gonna rip that thing and pray for the best. So we have to train for that. The grip does matter. Stance matters because you're wearing body armor. It does matter. If it didn't matter, we'd all just lift our arms up and expose your sides and wait to get shot. The way you stand does matter. So it, like looking before that, right? So looking at grip and, and shooting style and all that, how much does it come into play or how often do y'all see it when you're doing your training where someone, their clothing may get in the way? And I think you mentioned that or their holster I mean, that has to be a huge part of it, right? Of, of that either mission planning, knowledge transfer, or whichever one, but making sure you're prepared for the moment when it comes gear selection, clothing, all of that, right? I think a lot of times the the basic foundation is overlooked. I mean, just across the board, they want to do the super cool things, and it's like you can't really do that without a foundation. And we always hammer back the foundation. We go back to it, revi- revisit it, and we we drill the basic level foundation and build up. Um, yeah, I mean, like, nobody wants to hear that. There's no magic drill. Like, if you go to the Patriots right now and watch practice, it looks just like the Jets, just like a high school football team. Same thing. They're running the same plays more dynamic with bigger humans. That's a, it's like at the highest level. You think I go in the seven meter and we do cartwheels and shoot between our legs? Probably not. Nope. <laughs> yeah, you want me to go up in the Rockies with you and go stalk, stalk a, a whitetail and be successful without doing any practice? I just took everything out of plastic. And not it good. sounds like a recipe for disaster. Yep. Yes. But it looks really cool. Still got the tags yeah. on it. Yeah. That, that kind of strikes me, right? I mean, even if from personal experience, when you translate it over to hunting, like what goes into the 
whether we call it the off season or what, but the gear selection to make sure that a guy who can stand on a 3D range and hit a bullseye every time and translate that into the 200 inch deer. Yeah. Now, how do you translate that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's new gear that comes out every year, and you have like we're in February right now. So, so I call February kind of training season because whitetail season's out. And this is when you get the new gear, the new arrows, the new broadheads, bows, stands, everything. And you test all of it. That's right now from February to May. That's, that, that's training. That is getting better at your shooting. Um, that's trying out all the new products and actually literally testing them. You're not going to pull the tags off August 15th before opening day or you're, you're not a professional, right? You're, you're not, you're not a professional. And, and you're, 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 you're constantly, if you're constantly thinking about the 200 inch deer with your prep and, and you're, you're fighting three things, sight, sound, and smell. And if you keep that in your, you know, in the forefront, those are the three things that you have to defeat. And when you're selecting your gear, if it's not going to be quieter, if it's not going to help deter the scent, if they're going to be able to see you, you, you can't use it. Just because cool Joe with 15 million followers on Instagram wears the fancy whatever, if, if it's not going to hide you better in a tree, you, you can't you can't use it. I don't care. You know, he, the, the sponsorship in the hunting game is big, mm-hmm. and you, you have to pay attention to that. Is this guy telling me this because it's going to help me be better, or is he – telling me this because he's going to get a sponsorship for it. And, and you have to weed through all that because there's a ton of that in the hunting game. It's, it's almost like NASCAR, you know, with the, with the sponsorship stuff. And if, if you keep those in the forefront, sight, sound, and smell, is this era going to be quieter? Is this era going to be faster so it doesn't have the big arc? It's, you know, it's got a much flatter trajectory so you can shoot through the holes in the woods. Um, you know, if if your scent regimen, if you're not, if you go straight from work, you you know, straight into the and guys do that and they, they kill deer. You know, guys go straight from work. They they've been working all day. They get off at four o'clock. They go in, but a real professional, he's going to get showered. He's going to go through. He's going to get his scent free clothes. He's not going to take any of that for granted. And again, if you're not looking at those three things with everything that you're prepping with, you're missing the boat. Yeah, so sight, sound, smell. Yeah. Right? So that reminds me of the story you were telling us last night. Remember, he's talking about coming over here and the dog smelling you. Mm-hmm. Um, how much time, you know, because, again, I think when we think of tier one operators, right, I mean, we see the missions, and y'all talk about the missions and, like, what you were talking about on your podcast, we kind of think about the mission. But how much time do y'all spend? You know, maybe when it's you're not on deployment, maybe you're home and you're going in and training every day. I mean, how much time are y'all spending on the sight, sound, and smell component of what you're doing? Well, it goes to the pants, right, or anything. So sight and sound all day, every day. And that's, that's the reality you live in. The smell, not so much until you get overseas, just because of the dog component. But, yeah, I mean, sound was a huge thing. Like, the footwear. Everybody makes fun of wearing skateboard shoes. Like, it's exactly why I wear skateboard shoes. Like, I, don't, I can't wear that big a solo boot or whatever it is for, like, high-end CQB, where that's the main function. It's not the terrain to get there. Um, but I mean, everything's different for me. It's the connection to the ground. When I have that huge, thick rubber sole, I lose connectivity to the ground. I just do. I don't walk wider because I heel strike because that's the way we walk. Now it's a thunk, 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 thunk. Well, times that by an entire team, it's loud. 
Now I pick up a rock in my shoe and now I'm dragging it across the tile floor. It echoes to eternity. People hear it. Imagine two or three guys have that. Thunk, 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 thunk. It sounds like a fucking marching band going on. We can't have it like your pants, like Gore-Tex. It's loud, man. And people can hear it. So we're running around a, a building doing CQB with a real opposing force and everybody on my side wearing Gore-Tex. You can hear it. It's like you can't do it. So, yeah, I mean, the sound, sound and sight, like the lighting conditions you're in, the condition of the moon, what's condition of the sun, like am I being backlit by a full moon right now? Where are we at? Street lights, everything. Like if I just skirt five inches off this road, I'm on the backside of the street lights in this black void. Now no one can see me. So Iraq was very tricky with the street lights, just the different lighting conditions. But the guys who played the game long enough, like the guys who were ahead of their time, like, not me. The guys we kind of learned from, they were ahead of their time. Like they saw that down the road and they lived in their reality. Stop walking down the middle of the road. Okay. Hide in the shadows. Okay. We're not going to walk around this way. We're going to skirt on this side. We're going to avoid all these dogs. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Like they saw it for what it really was. Like they were very philosophical in their approach. And I always got a lot out of it. I mean, with the mindset of, kind of what DJ was talking about I mean if you're hunting a bad guy or hunting an animal how would I set up in, in my neighborhood that I know like where would I watch for things to come and kind of translating that to the animal of, maybe they don't know I, I don't know but like at least you're thinking about like, they do. If, if I'm an animal like where's the most covered protected place that I can travel to for food and water and shelter um but like with bad guys too, it's like, where would they look? The moon, like the sound, the smell, the wind, knowing that sound's going to carry with the wind, scent's going to carry with the wind. Um, most advantageous kind of route to travel to, um, or easy travel. Um, are people going to go over a mountain or around it? Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's looking like, well, the only way to get to, to that is skirt around it. That's what everybody does. No one would be dumb enough to try to go up and over this thing. It's like you got two mountain peaks. It's like there's a valley. So I don't think anyone's coming over the mountain peaks or walking around. It's like they're just going to take the least path of resistance. You got to be willing to do what others aren't. So, so I mean, this, this falls right into hunt clubs, right? <clears throat> everybody goes to the hunt club in the mornings. They open the gate. Chains hit the gate. Big deer hears that. He knows what's going on. They pull into the parking lot. They park there, they get out, they get on their four-wheeler, they crank it up, off they go to their stand. A mature buck hears that, he just hunkers down. He knows exactly what's going on. So as opposed to that, you park a mile from the gate and you walk in. He has no idea you're there. And what does he do? He comes bebopping by at 8 o'clock because nobody's there hunting. Mm -hmm. you, you, you think that the deer is patterning you, patterning you as much as you're patterning them. And so it's you definitely thinking outside the box is a huge component. So it's kind of the foundations, right? I mean, kind of what you're talking about earlier. You know, one of the things I think when you say that that strikes me that I've heard you say so many times that I try to emulate, but I'm still not very good at, and I think most hunters probably don't, is landscape planning, right? I mean, really taking a look maybe from a, a top level at where you're hunting. Kind of talk about that, maybe how you are planning your hunting based upon the terrain, the map, ingress points you know because that's what you're doing in the early season 
Yeah. Right? I mean, you're looking at where you are, so maybe go into that a little bit. Well, I mean, from a from an elevated view, I mean, ingress and egress are super important because you're leaving scent every time you walk in and out of the woods. I mean, that's again, that's one of the three main things is they're going to smell how you're getting in there, how you're getting out. So you have to plan for that. You know, the deer, you know, in a really simplified way in the, in the afternoons, typically they're bedded and they'll be going to food that, you know, that's kind of how they operate. And, you know, a lot of guys want to set up on food and that's fine, but what happens? It gets dark, right? And if they're deer in that, in that food area, you've got to climb down and get out of there. So you're going to spook them all. So it's probably better. I mean, not every situation is like that, but to get halfway so that all the deer that are going to come by, they get out in the food and then you're able to slip out of there and they never knew you were there because you can blow up a whole, you know, hunt, you know, basically the whole early season. If you're in that food plot, the big deer comes in after dark and then you climb down and get out of there. Um, and then wind, obviously, again, you know, for, for me, scent is the most important thing. Um, followed by sight, followed by sound. They're all really important. But when you set up, a lot of guys, you know, I need the wind blowing from where the deer's coming from to me so he can't smell me, right? What they don't think about are the thermals, you know, with dropping and rising thermals. So, it, you know, it happens all the time. Guys go in, you know, it's a 10 mile an hour wind. They, they're set up where they, the trail that they think the deer's gonna come down to go to the food and the wind starts to mellow in the afternoon, your thermals start to drop and they sink right down to that trail and the deer are smelling them. They're like, I've got a north wind, what is, what's going on here? And it's the thermals. And if you're not thinking about the thermals and where they're gonna go, then you know, that's a, that's a real big issue. And, and that wind and thermals is something you could really do an entire podcast on. But you know, you, you talked about terrain and, and you know, how do you set up? And you know, that's something that, that has to be at the forefront you know, the wind direction, what the thermals are going to do, where you think the deer are bedded, where are they going to feed? All that, again, has to be, why am I doing this? What is the plan? And, and where are they coming from and where are they going? So how do you start that process, right? I mean, I've seen you with maps where mm -hmm. you're looking at it and looking, differentiating between bedding. And food. I mean, so where do you start that process? So it, it really depends on where I'm hunting. If, if I'm hunting, like, I'll just use a hunt club, like our hunt club. It's a highly pressured piece of property, right? There's guys that hunt down there a bunch. Um, and so what I'm looking for is the complete out-of-the-way place, the thickest, nastiest. It, where would this deer feel comfortable that nobody's bothering them? Where is everybody else hunting? And I'm going to get as far away from that as I possibly can into an overlooked area. And so you look on a map. You can see where the stands are. You know, that T-section that, that, that we set up. Um, you know, it was a junction between two cutovers, and when the rut happened, it was like a highway. And no, there were no stands in there, nobody hunted in there. Two years in a row, two big deer right out of that spot because it was an out-of-the-way place that literally found on the map, went in there, scrapes, rubs, big deer sign everywhere, set up, and it, it worked perfect. Um, and so that, that would be where it would all start is other properties, you're, you're not going to have the pressure. You know, some guys don't have any pressure at all. And, you know, they're able to attack it a little bit different where they can clo uh, hunt closer to the food, you know, where the deer are coming out like they should, completely relaxed. And so um, it really depends on the property. But from a, you know, an elevated view, the, the map, the terrain, and, and keeping in mind where they're coming from and where they're going is, is kind of how I attack it.
do, do you ever do um, any drone flight before you walk it in? Like if, if you have your, you have the vehicle drop off point, like, you know, you're staging from there, you're going to walk in, say it's three quarters of a mile. Do you ever launch up anything or get on Google, Google earth to actually pre-plan this thing? Absolutely. You can see it. You yeah. ever fly with a drone? Not with a drone, but that would be pretty cool. I don't know. Just in my mind, like, to be able to look at it on Google Earth, like, all right, I'm going to walk down here, 500 meters, I'm going to bank, and now we can kind of see the wind cone because we got to be able to time that, but not to overfly it, to actually see what it looks like. It's always different in real life. And that was my thing is, like, we'd set in for these things in the military. Like, and then when you actually get there on the ground, you're like, that is not what I thought it was going to look like. Like, oh. But if you had the drone, it would drop it down. You can actually see the height of everything. Like, I am expecting an 80-foot tall tree. Like, it is going to cast a shadow this far in, like, Kind of play with it, you know, a realistic look. But what's the longest? Um, I mean, when you got in there to hunt whitetail, it's not. It's not like how I grew up. Just you shoot whatever, whatever comes out, other than a doe. I mean, what's the longest you've stalked one of these things for? Oh, you you hunt them for years. You know, you you find a four and a half year old buck that's super nocturnal. You know, he's hard to get on. It may be two, three years before you get him, or you never get him. So, how many times are you going into the stand unsuccessful? You don't even see him. How many times does that happen before you actually get them? A lot. I mean, again, you can hunt a whole season for one particular deer and, and never get him. And, you know, it, it gets really frustrating. I mean, you're in Kansas for 10 days in 30-mile-an-hour winds. It's negative 5 degrees, and it's the rut, and you're sitting there from daylight to dark, and you're seeing two deer a day. That that plays with your brain. I love that. I mean, it, it really – but when you beat him – when you finally figure it out and you beat him and here he comes and he has no clue that you're there, he walks by 15 steps, shoot him with the arrow, man, there is, that is the tippy top. Yeah. When you, because they're, they're, they're so hard to get and the mature ones are so smart and they're masters of their environment. When you can get in there and manipulate it and they don't know you're there, man, that is, that's something. Do you ever, um, on those kind of hunts, change tactics? You're like, this just isn't working, and look outside the box. Like, let me try this. Like, hundred percent. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, you, you guys think, oh, I got a hunt, I got a hunt, I got a hunt. No, if it's not going, I'll back out and, and get somewhere where I can see four or five different draws in glass for two afternoons. And lo and behold, whoop, right at dark, he got up out of this little CRP thicket. You think that's where you found your most success? A lot of yeah, you scouting more than you hunt is ultra important. I, I had a good year, shot eight mature bucks this year, but I probably sat in the stand less than I have in the past because I spent so much time scouting. And I mean, there were multiple mornings that I would get up at four o'clock, drive to where I was going to hunt, get out. In these dadgum weather apps are always wrong. You get out of the truck four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning. Check the wind. It's exactly opposite. The thermals are doing something completely different. And what do you do? You abort the mission, right? You leave because you know that if you go in there with the wrong wind and that deer smells you, this game, he knows he's being hunted. It's over. You know, you're, he's going to go nocturnal. He's going to leave. And, and so that's the discipline, right? Is that if you don't do that, you lose. And that, that's really, you know, you see a lot of guys that are competing with each other hunting you know oh i killed this great big deer oh you didn't what whatever it, i don't ever compete against another guy i'm competing against the animal if, if west kills a big deer 
man, I'm so happy for him because I know how hard it is to do that. I'm not competing against other people. I'm competing about, against that deer. And when I can beat him, that that is is really special. Do you think the, I won't say stereotypical hunters, but just kind of the, I say part-time hunters in a sense, you know, everyone has a day job. They go in with a stereotypical mission planning of like, I, I went to my stand and I didn't see anything. Or just the luck of like, is in my stand and I got a great deer. But if more of the stereotypical hunters step back and said, if I was a deer, how would I move or think? And approached it that way. Vice. Well, my dad told me he put up the stand as a great tree and it's kind of an opening. And yeah, you, you, you have, without a doubt, you got to create a plan. And that's where most guys don't do it. Most guys stumble into the woods, they see a scrape in the middle of a big oak flat, they throw up a, a stand, they hunt there, and they never see the deer. Why? Because that deer made that scrape when it was dark. There, there's, no, there's no bedding anywhere near here, there's no thicket, there's nowhere for him to hide. If he's in this oak flat, it's either right at dark or it's after dark. So that's back to the terrain thing is knowing those thickets and those bedding areas. And you learn them during this training period of February, March, April. You can go out and walk, pound the brush, you know, look for these things and find them now so that then in the fall you already know. You know, you, you can't go in blind. Whatever property you're hunting, um, you, if you do go in blind, you need to be hunting. Like if you're going in to check an area, you need to have your stand on your back. And, every, and when you go in and you find that hot sign, hang and hunt, be back there the next morning, break it down and move because you're going to learn it as you, as you go. And, you know, they call that mobile hunting. And that, that's, a, that's a really good tactic and a really good way to kill deer. Well, to me, again, I, what are some in-between steps, right? I mean, so we, we talked about the, the landscape, right? And then you talked about, well, where they're going. What, what do you do in between? I mean, right, there's an in-between period where you've identified the area. How do you identify the deer that you want to kill? And then how do you identify where you want to put your stand? Because I know, again, from personal experience, you're talking about the weekend hunter. I mean, you're, you're looking at him, right? I've made every mistake in the books. And even with a, a great friend who tells me how to do it, I still fail. But how do you get to that? How do you get from this looks like a great area? I see a scrape. You know, I, I see signs. To now you're in the position to make the kill because you've chosen the right mm. deer, you've chosen the right stand placement. How, how does right. that all work? So, so that that goes back to 100 percent of your scouting. There, there's really there's three ways to find out about a big deer, and there, you know that that's really it. You you see him with your own eyes. You get an intelligence or a trail camera picture of that deer, or you hear about him from somebody, right? And that's the most unreliable. <laughs> you you got to verify that. But it, it, you you see him scouting from a distance early season you know july august you know these guys in these bean fields they, they they're in bachelor herds early they come out to the fields early in the afternoon before the season starts and you can find that deer now when they shed their velvet and all that comes off they'll move out to their you know their their rut or winter type areas or fall areas they break out of that but at least you know there's a big deer in the area and then running your cameras doing long range scouting you know, you climb up and you watch like that place in Kansas. You know, it, it wasn't working. I wasn't seeing anything. So I backed out and I went up and got on a big ridge behind the property and just glassed for three afternoons. And and so so really that's how you do it or, or how I do it with trail cameras and then the, the, the long range scouting and it and then the mobile hunting. If, if you're not having luck with what you're doing, 
you got to change it up and think outside the box. How many guys do you help with do that routinely? Because it seems to me, and again, you know, that most people wouldn't take those three days, right? I'm in Kansas. I want to hunt. I mean, I'm not out here to look through a set of binoculars. I'm out here to kill the deer. Yep. But in that, I mean, ultimately that leads to failure. I mean, how many guys do you see that aren't willing to do that? A, a lot. Happens all the time. Yeah. I got a question, a super basic one, but so when you get a new stand, how often do you see people take their new stand just out into the hunt instead of put it up into a tree? Hopefully they have one close by them and, and kind of walk through the steps because I, I can only imagine you're probably going in dark, setting up your your stand and, well, now it's the first time I've set up a stand at night or like I'm missing something or I don't have the right strap and I can only imagine like there's only, there's such a wide variety of trees and a circumference of like, I don't have the long enough strap. Like, or like, shit, uh, I don't have something to cut a zip tie with and now you're being loud too. Now sun's rising and sitting there at the bottom of the tree. Yeah. So there, there's two ways to do it. You, you have what I, what I call preset stands mm-hmm. where, where I actually have a, a backpack that's got all that stuff in it. It's got hand saws, extra straps, longer ratchet straps. Um, and what I'm doing there is I'm taking a stand maybe in the middle of the day, and I'll, I'll go into an area that I have scouted in February and know that it's going to be good in season. Mm-hmm. I'll go and hang the stand. And I'll have all my stuff with me. So it's one trip in, one trip out. And I always hunt that stand that first afternoon. You, you can do it in the dark, but it's really difficult because you don't, you don't know exactly what you're going to have around you when it gets daylight. But so, so that's the one is to preset the stand, come out, and then go back in and hunt it. You can also hang them in the, in the off season when deer season's not in. You can go in in July, August before your season starts and pre-hang stands and have them ready in what you think are going to be good ambush points. And then back to the mobile side of it is where you you go in and you actually hang and hunt. And you can do that in the dark, but the, the issue you have is when you climb up, you're going to have limbs and stuff out there that you can't see in the dark. And so what I prefer to do is to go in, hang the stand, hunt it that afternoon, and then I'll leave everything hanging in the, in the tree. Then I'll leave after dark, and then I'll be back in there the next morning, climb back up and hunt it again. Then you can break it all down, move to the next spot. How many dry runs did you do before you actually did it real well? Because where I'm going with this, I'm picturing a tree in my backyard. I can't wait for a look (laughs) on my wife's face when I start hanging this thing and shooting a bow out of there. (laughs) And my neighbors, what are you doing? But it's like, I'm doing a dry run. I got to figure out how this thing works. And when I actually go on the hunt, it's not that time. Like, right. No, no, that, that's it. You, again, this is the time of year that you're doing all that. You're getting the new stand, or, or if you're just starting hunting, now is the time to get prepared for what's going to happen in October and November. You know, now's the time to be hanging the stand, shooting your bow out of the stand, trying new camouflage, you know, seeing how all that works so that come October. And, and, and guys don't do that. Most guys hang their bow up the last day of the season. They pull it out a week before. If you've never hung a, a – and you call it – it's a hanger stand, right? Yeah, a lock-on stand. Lock on, yep. it, it, it is an experience. And I, again, being one who may not plan well enough, and Joe's heard these stories, but if you don't dry run it and you start hanging those the ladder and you realize you, you only have three straps and you need four, right, mm-hmm. or you don't have your pole saw or 
whatever, I mean, maybe, maybe the best way to talk about your setup, right, when you're going in and doing it, which most people, again, fail at, right? When you're going to hang a stand, what do you have with you, right, to make sure that you have everything right to hang it? And then we'll get into the physical fitness side of it, which is a critical aspect of it, too. So Yeah, so, so in my tree prep bag, I have handsole, I have extra straps, I have night eyes, um, I have safety lines, there's a thing called a lifeline, um, backup ratchet straps, I have a backup um, seat pad that I keep in there. Um, always have an extra trail camera because anytime you go in and you see something hot, you want to, you don't want to have to go, Oh, I should have had a trail camera. You know, I can put that on here and get some intelligence. So you keep all that in that pack. Um, and you know, again, you, you go in and you hang this thing in an afternoon, you, you can hunt that afternoon. You got to come back, you know, maybe it's, you've got business or whatever it may be. And you're going to come back and hunt that thing in the dark in big woods, finding a single tree, you know, even with, you know, you, you plotted it on your map, but finding that exact tree in the dark, you, you got to have some way to get back in there. So either night eyes or those, a lot of the lifelines now, the safety lines have reflective stuff on them. So you got to have that um, because we, you'll get lost. We used to crack um, Kim lights when I was a kid. We'd set them up like last light. We'd crack them. We'd go out for first light. So do they have a 12 hour shelf life? So it'd be just enough. We'd go out there and you just barely pick it up tape it up that's what we found back in the day yep but yeah like night vision now like <laughs> right, on an IR kim light yeah remember we're going through buds we were doing land nav mm. and you know those um five foot tall like stakes pretty much like green stakes we had to find 10 of them in the middle of the woods in the mountains and it had this little dog tag and you had to like scrape it on your piece of paper to show the instructions but I, I found it but it's like to find a needle in a haystack pretty much in 10 of them Mm-hmm. And y'all, were y'all using night vision to do no, that? No, we're I didn't even, oh my God. I never even pulled out night maps. vision. We were pulled out maps and reading just like the terrain. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to get lost in 20 feet of woods at night. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. that flashes yeah. like those trees yeah. and it's over. And you walk in a circle. Mm-hmm. I've done that many times. All right, I know that I've got to go 150 steps because I walked it all. And I don't get my compass out. And I'm I got it. Cloudy, no stars. And you start walking. And then you look down and you're back at the road you just left. Sorry. Yeah. It happens, uh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the, that's real world. Yeah. yeah. But this conversation right now, brand new hunter, never done it before. We have this conversation now and you save him one full day of a wasted hunt. Like, you only have so many in your lifetime. Right. And, and you, you, you just wandered through that whole thing. And what have you done the whole time? Skunk it up. Stunk it up. Yep. Yeah. It's like, that's, we talked about before, like, to do the three days of study, like it's called being a pro. Like, not a novice, not a weekend warrior. Like that's his profession. Right. It takes three days to do it right. If you want to do it continuously, you want to do it for forty years. Got to do it right. Got to go the yeah. whole way. Well, you've thought about the mistakes before you make them, right? And you're going to still make them. Well, sure, but the ones that ruin the hunt, that ruin the day, that you know. Oh, great! I scouted that area for three months. Now it's done because I didn't think about how I was going to walk in there. Yeah. Right. That I was going to cross over the path the whole way and just completely ruin it. Yeah. It gets back to the foundations. I mean, I remember, you know, talking about it last night, you were telling us about the boat that got lost in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, so it's just so easy. Right. I mean, to, to lose your navigation if you're not really kind of thinking that through. And, you know, when I was training with, with them, you know, DJ made a, a interesting point. 
you said you fight in the condition that you're in, right? If you're out of shape, if you're untrained, if you don't know what the heck you're doing, you know, you, you fight in the condition that you're in. It's not, it's not going to wait for you to get, get ready. Same thing with hunting, right? You hunt in the condition that you're in. If you're pulling the tags off your clothes and you're pulling the, wiping the dust off the arrow and you're going in and, oh, my God, there's a giant, you're not ready. You are not ready. True story. Hunting as a kid, 30-30 lever action. First deer to ever walk down in front of me my entire life, and I don't have one chambered, and I know it. Ooh. And he is, I mean, inside of 25, I mean, it's, it's the perfect thing you'd ever want to see. Like eight pointer, huge chest facing right at me, the easiest shot you could ever have. And as soon as I saw him, I realized that I had not chambered one yet. I walked all the way in there, slung over my shoulder, climbed up in the fucking deer stand and never chambered one. And I knew it. I'm like, maybe I can do it quiet. I'll just slowly crack this. <laughs> Gone. Yeah. Do you, do you never find, again. yeah. Do you find, um, it difficult for hunters and like DJ story too, um, to mentally let go of those mistakes and not ruin a hunt, like not let that just haunt them. It, it's hard to stomach and get over. Yeah. Especially when you, when you know it was avoidable, mm -hmm. when it was something you could have controlled, you know, you, you, you can't control the thermals. You, you think they're going to do something and you plan the best you can. If they blow down to him and they're not, they weren't supposed to do that, but the weather changed. Um, it got cloudy. It wasn't supposed to, whatever it was, those mistakes you can live with, but the ones that you can control that you make, those are the ones that haunt you forever. I can, I can just picture like my first hunt with a bow and you don't have your bow ready. I was supposed to have my bow ready. <laughs> like shit. <laughs> like, what does he, what does that even mean? Like, but yeah, I mean, to his points, like I can think about it now with our guns. It's like, I suppose everyone chambered. I don't know any better. Yeah, but you, you guys on a mission would never do that. Well, no. Yeah. Ever, ever, ever. Well, not now. Yeah. But as a little kid, like, I don't know what I don't know. And those are the lessons like, that you like, that you learn. In my mind, like my that 3030s in the back of a, a Ford Ranger in a gun rack, and I pull it out, I sling it over my shoulder. I'm gonna walk down there and chamber before I get in my stand. Chamber when I get in the top, I got I don't know. I mean, we we're 12 young. years old. Nope. When we were young, like I say young, like seals deployment. Why would I carry an extra battery? I changed one last week. I didn't know. Luckily, it didn't really bite me in the ass, but it was like perfect example. Yeah. I mean, the night vision, we got these new breakaway mounts. Super cool. Amazing. Perfect example of never using it and training and you and like walking through it. We're in Iraq. Breach goes off. I go to run towards the door and my nod nod mount breaks off. Yeah. That that's an issue. Yeah. Slams in your face, cut your face oh, all yeah. open. Mm. Cause like I mean, you've seen them, they're all on bungee retention. <clears throat> and there's a breakaway switch. So if you get hit, they'll break off and not break the actual knots themselves. Well, we don't know. So I mean, like you can just hit them and they come off. It's like they're very hard to get back on, especially when you're in the middle of an operation. Yeah, it's one of the first things we'll do with SWAT teams. Like, let's go through this mount real quick so you yeah. never make the mistake I did. And they're well, all like, oh. That strikes me so much. And I think kind of what you said, it, 
it's you always say be a pro, right? And so an amateur. And again, I'll, I'll, I hate to bring up personal stories, but Joe was nice enough one time to take me on a Texas hunt. Um, we were hunting all that, right? And that's a pretty intense hunt. I mean, you've got to be in good shape. You've got you're carrying your rifle on your back, and we hiked what probably ten miles. We're up on a bluff overlooking the Rio. And all of a sudden, there the damn all dead, right? So I got this big heavy gun. I take a shot, miss him. The guy looks at me and says, "Chamber another one." I didn't have another bullet in my rifle. I didn't even think about taking a second shot. Why? Because I'm an amateur, right? I didn't put the time in to think about it, and so I didn't get that second opportunity. My Texas hunt was over because I didn't think about putting that second gun in the chamber. Um, but kind of back to, and maybe it's still on that same pro amateur point. Something I know that Joe does, and maybe you can talk about this too, and I think it's the discipline and the patience. How many times you've gotten up at 4.30 in the morning, you've driven out to your hunting spot, and you've done your feather and said, you know what, thermals aren't good. I'm going home. Yeah. You, right? I mean, most people don't do that. They'll, I'm up. I've gotten up. I'm, gonna, I'm still going to hunt. Or, or go to a different spot, right? right? You can change and go somewhere else. You don't necessarily have to burn the morning, but if, if you know, that one deer is the one you're after. Um, you know, that, that, that is the discipline. You, you have to be able to, to burn hunts because you're going to ruin it if you don't. And the, the end state of, of seeing him break cover and you beat him is worth that. It's worth getting up at 4 a.m., driving an hour to where you're going to hunt, getting in there and pulling the plug on it because it, you know, it's just, it's just the conditions aren't perfect for it. I mean, I'm sure you guys did that on ops, you know, when the weather was wrong or intel came in bad or – there are contingencies. I mean, you have go, no yeah. go. Like if this happens, we're not going. If, you know, if, um, if the weather's too bad, you can't go because you don't have supporting assets or whatever. Like there's no reason to take a swing and a miss when you know it's greater than 50% you'll miss. Like why waste it today when you can just reset and do it again later? It's like having a discipline to, to get right there and not having, you know, not having an ego or anything else make, make me commit. Like, I've already drawn all the way out here. Would Tom Brady say that right now? Right. No. Get in the truck and go back home. Like, save it. Like, don't waste this. Dude, you, you, you spent so long. You spent so much money and time and energy in trying to make this thing right. And you're right here. Don't waste it. Be a pro. Go back home. Get some rest. Get back on Google Earth and reset. Reset, like, yeah. Don't waste it. Like, don't. We only have so many hunts in our life. That's right. It's like we went all the way to Texas to do this right now. Like, let's think of all the details so we don't miss an opportunity because we might never get another one, especially the way this country's going right now. Like, we might not ever get a hunt again. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, like I'm, I'm really trying to get one in 2022. Yeah. But yeah. Like, just don't waste it. Like, just have the patience. I'm the worst with patience. I mean, I just am. But for things that I'm passionate about, like, I try to. I'm like, just, I really don't want to waste this opportunity right now. It's just, be a pro like what would a pro tell me right now like go home reset yeah and and again the things the things that you can control you you have to be really proficient at i mean you, you don't have to be a botech you know you don't have to guys can do that but you need to understand all your systems and going back to the the, the mistakes that, that can happen that are kind of out of your control um i was hunting a really big deer in Kentucky and it was, we, we knew he was there. We had seen him from long range scouting, had trail camera pictures of him. He was religiously coming out to this bean field every afternoon, but he was right at dark. He came with two does, which is super unusual for a big deer to be with does early season. Normally they're all bachelored up. 
but he's with two big mature does. That's who he traveled with. And we went in to set the stand and it was, it was going to be perfect. Absolutely perfect. We're going to sneak in 10 o'clock. It was going to rain at one o'clock. We're going to wash all the scent away. So I'm like, I'm going to have this thing perfect for when he walks out. I got everything hung where it needed to be hung. I looked out, I had a good shooting lane here, good shooting lane there. And I should have left it. Right. I had everything right. And I was like, you know what, if I cut those two limbs right there, I'll be able to shoot there as well. Not necessary, just making it better. So what, and I, it's going to rain. It's going to rain it too. It's going to wash all the scent away. No big deal. Climbed down out of my stand, walked over there, cut the limbs, left, doesn't rain it too. Rain blows out. Get in the stand. We're fine. We're fine. No problem. Sure enough, right at dark, one of the big does comes out. I'm like, yeah, he's here he comes. I know he is. He walked up, it was like a gap in a fence, and I never forget it. His big head and all those antlers came up, and he had these giant black eyes, and he re all I could see was his head. And he reached his head out and smelled where I'd cut that branch, and he was like a dog. He backed up, laid his head down, and spun and left, never made a sound. I did not get another trail camera picture of that deer until October at 3 o'clock in the morning. So that's what you're you're going against. The error was assuming that it was going to rain and wash everything away. You, you again, I mean, but that's one. You, you talk about things that you remember and 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 regret. That's one of them that I will never ever ever forget. And that was a world class 190 200 inch velvet buck. And you know that's one I, I assumed it was going to rain, and it would have been good if it had, but it didn't. And those are, you know, those are the ones that really stick with you. Yeah. Or you don't get out of the tree at all. He walks out and that's the exact lane you got to shoot from and you hit the branch you didn't trim. That's right. Yeah. Deviates off. Yep. It's like. that. You know, that's kind of uncontrollable because you're, yep. you're damned if you do, you're damned yep. if you don't. So that you, you do get into those situations. But like, you know, analyzing that just from a, a novice, that seems like the professional path. Like I'm taking all my experience and knowledge and I'm looking completely outside the box. I'm looking at my environmentals, got rain forecasted. Like I have a method to why I'm doing that. It wasn't out of laziness. It wasn't out of arrogance. Like taking all my, all my experience and I'm applying it to this one thing. And this is lesser of two evils. I'm going to get out of the stand. I'm going to trim that branch right now because it affords me more options and opportunity to shoot this animal. Yeah. And the weather just didn't cooperate. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's one of those act of God things. Like, I couldn't plan there was a hurricane that came through at 3 p.m. Like, can't plan for that. But it's like, yeah, I mean, most people wouldn't even thought of that. Yeah, and most it's people the, just what a guy was like, ah, fuck. The things you can control and can't control. And if you can control it, you've got to be dialed 100%. Hmm. Well, and plan for it, right? I mean, again, it goes back to making sure you've got all your gear right, making sure you've done your setup right. Because then once you're in the position to, to actually make the kill or to perform, you know, the mission – the intangibles, that's when the patience comes in, right? I mean, something that you couldn't plan for. Okay, I got to scrub it. I got to walk. But you were in the position to do it. You had the, the saw when you set the stand up. You knew where to put it. You walked in the right way. So, again, it just kind of gets all back to the planning aspect of it, right? Yeah. Putting your, I mean, you, you were in the best position you could be I, in. I had a plan, and if it, if it had rained, I would have killed that deer. Mm -hmm. If I had not have sawed that limb, I probably would have killed him too because he would have come on out into another shooting lane. I would have got him. Um it, it, that was just an example of something you can't control that that has haunted 
you know, me and, and it makes you second guess sometimes what, you know, what you're doing, but the, there was a plan developed. There was intelligence gathered. You know, there was a big deer conditions were right. And we went in and we would have killed him had it not been for it not raining. I'm hundred percent sure of that. Well, maybe to me, again, maybe drawing it back, I think to what we had talked a little bit earlier and maybe more to, towards maybe even what you guys did versus what you do now. But how do you, you know, how do you prepare mentally for mission failures or for, you know, something that may go wrong that causes you to abort the mission? I mean, with the training and, and the importance of what you're doing, I mean, it's got to be an incredible, you, you talked about, you know, losing the deer, right? But I mean, when y'all are on a mission, I mean, how would you prepare mentally? Or, and how do you train people now to say, look, if, 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 if something goes bad when you're in there, Here's how you, you here's how you're going to recover from it because you're mentally prepared to do it. Is it is it the details of the planning? I mean, how do you guys do that? Um, I think contingency plans and everybody understanding those, not being married to just one option, um, knowing that if you need a medevac, who's responsible and who's a backup person and who's a backup person to that person, um, and being able to deviate and adjust to the threat and the mission. Um, we always talk about two, you come into a room, your buddy gets smoked, you smoke that guy and controlling the levels of like, you're going to be so amped up, but remember the op's not over. Come back down. Remember where you're, where you are and what you're doing. And if it's like, if there's not such a time sensitive thing, like kind of do a little huddle up real quick. Like, Hey, take a deep breath, everybody. And let's continue on. Um, that's definitely a big one. I mean, people getting shot and killed, it, it's just, it's something that will happen. It's its hard to prevent in, in our, what our line of work used to be. Um, but we're all willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice. Um, but heavy planning, you know, and then deviating from the plan. Um, yeah, I think if, um, if the whole team knows the plan, like religiously, like if that thing becomes your religion, it's very easy just to do what's necessary. It's very easy just to morph the plan because you have trust in everybody. Like, Cole says we're all going left. Okay. Well, the plan says we're going right. Cole says we're going left. <laughs> like, I don't care. We have trust. So we can adapt and we call it pickup basketball. It's like, hey, we're all just standing in the room and he walks out and we'll just naturally start bouncing the ball. Now we'll start passing, start throwing rocks. Like, it's just, it's a thing you'll do. Just being a, being a team player, but if you know what the end state is, it, it's really easy just to morph the plan to make that. Okay, Joe shot, we gotta save Joe. Okay, we gotta save Joe. As soon as Joe's saved, now we can continue on. Or this whole thing doesn't make sense because Joe got shot, it is set a precedence, it's so bad right now, it's such a catastrophic injury, it's not worth moving on. Like we haven't committed so far. Like if we were doing a um, super long hunt, we're up in Montana, we all are. And I get out of the four by four and I roll my ankle. I roll it. Ego wants me to continue hobbling, slowing you down. But you know, because the pace you have to set to make it the 10 K into position, I'm not going to make it. We're going to blow an entire day. The professional sizes go home. Like it's not worth it. Your ankle's blown out. Go. So we got to shift the plan. Continue without me. We got to go back. Just got to be able to yeah, lift and shift and just be moldable, be flexible. Mm -hmm. 
I was actually going to ask you guys a question, but gut feelings and going against the plan or changing the plan. Um, I know we have had gut feelings together and separately in ops that it'll save people's lives and just that intuition. And I think people give themselves enough credit off that gut feeling. I, I was going to ask you guys, like, have you ever gone into a hunt and you're like, something's telling me I should maybe actually set up over here, take this route. You follow that gut feeling and it's successful. All the time. Yeah. And, and your your I think your gut gets better the more you do it, the more experience you have and whatever it is, and 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 you get in and and the area is just dead. You know, there's no birds, there's no squirrels, nothing's moving. You know, you 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 just feel it that you know. Nope, I need to be two draws over. It's just dead here. You know, your your gut or that tree looks really really good, but. In the morning, the sun's going to hit it the earliest, and the thermals are going to rise there the fastest. So that's where you know that's where I need to be. You know that your 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 gut can tell you that, and that's it's definitely part of the process. Yeah. Listening to your gut, mm-hmm. which comes from experience preparation right i mean because i know my gut is typically wrong on a hunt <laughs> right i mean i'll say god this sucks i'm, I'm going to get down and go walk over there to 17 because there's a lot of deer there and I, I mean i might as well have just gotten down and gone home right but again that's understanding your terrain you know where the deer are going right i mean it's got to go again there's that baseline there's that foundation mm-hmm. right that makes it where your gut can help you be successful right because you're trained you're prepared Whereas again, if you're not maybe a pro or you're not, you're the weekend guy who doesn't put the time into it, that gut can fail you though, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's not a, it's not an exact science. You know, you, you can't oversimplify it with, this is where the, I think the deer are bedding, this is where they're going to feed. Yes, that's how it should work. But there's so much that goes into that. You know, it just detail after detail after detail of, how much pressure have they had? How old's the deer? The the bigger deer is not going to travel with the herd. I mean, it's just there's so much that goes into that. But on paper, that's that's how most people look at it, and that's not how it always works no. out. Because that's how those deer get old and big and mature. They know how to avoid us. No, I mean we say the same thing overseas. Like you don't see fifty year old terrorists because they were bad like they're good at what they do that's how they're alive that long you know what i mean like you've been in this game a long time like you've been doing this since i was a child you're still doing it actively like it's not by chance <laughs> like those deer don't get to be seven eight years old with every dude who thinks they're a pro or are a pro trying to hunt them by accident like they're very good at avoiding you guys yeah like you're not gonna you shouldn't get them a novice walking out there, oh, blind luck. And it happens. <laughs> it does. It's like, can you do it again? Yeah. Can you do it repeatedly? Can you make a living off of it? Yeah. Like, if the apocalypse happened tomorrow, you had to go hunt, could you actually pull it off repeatable? No. If you could, could you train people to do it? Well, no. Yep. Details? Absolutely details. Yep. 
Joe, I think one of the things maybe that may be helpful is that we maybe skipped over a little bit is maybe for you to go into a little bit more of your background. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, really going into depth is kind of as to what started you with deer hunting, how you became so passionate about it to get to the point where you've developed a line of camo, you know, for whitetail deer hunting. Yeah, I was really fortunate. I grew up, uh, my dad was a, was a badass hunter, uh, still is. I mean, he's in his 70s and he loves it. And um, he was, you know, pretty hard on me. Um I never forget 12 years old. He handed me 243 and said, all right, buddy, I've taught you, you know, where they sleep, where they feed, the sign to look for, have at it. And, you know, I just kind of really went into the woods on my own and started deer hunting and figuring it out from the base he gave me. Um, and it was a good base. I mean, my old man had the 11th largest whitetail ever taken in the state of South Carolina. I mean, he, he was special or he is special. Um, so he, he really started the base and the passion for me hunting. And um, as I got older, I, I just really fell in love with it. The predator-prey relationship, and I just fell in love with it. And, you know, got into college, played baseball in college, and, you know, that ended in, in college. And, um, you know, I wanted to chase my hunting passion, and I was always fascinated with Africa. And um, I decided to go over there and, and, and give it a go as a professional hunter. And I went over there and did a, a long professional hunters course in South Africa. Uh, there were twelve um, there were twelve students, eleven South Africans, and myself. The course was taught in Afrikaans and in English, so that was pretty difficult. Um, you know, it, and it, it covered everything. It was harder, really, than any college course I ever took. Um, Joseph, how how did you find that course? What year was that? Man, it, it was. 1998, 99. I mean, you didn't have the internet. Like you weren't banging around on faxes. Google. So I went to, I went to. You so, faxed a dude in South Africa and yeah. got in a plane and flew over there? So, so yeah. <laughs> so, so I went to a thing called Safari Club International. Safari Club International. And I got every single outfitter and professional hunters brochure that they had. And I just started faxing them. And I would get on a, a phone calls, you know, obviously six, seven hours difference. I would, I would try and call them. And, and finally, I had one that took me serious. And um, he told me about the, I was like, I want to come work for you. He's like, well, you, you don't have any credentials. I was like, I've hunted my whole life. And, and, you know, they said, you have no experience with African game whatsoever. The first thing you're going to have to do is, is do a professional hunter's course. I was like, I'm in, sign me up. How, how quick can I get there? So they, you know, took a leap of faith with me and um, got it set up. And I went over there and did the course. And I mean, it's, it's everything. It's how do you set a table with dishes properly? Which one's the red wine glass? Because you've got really high-end clients that are coming over and spending thousands of dollars to hunt. And it has to be professional. You know, you, you snake bites, you know, hemotoxic, uh, cytotoxic and neurotoxic venoms. How do you treat, you know, snake bites, CPR, horn judging? You know, you've got a kudu at, at 300 meters and, you know, you have to be within 5%, you know, is he, is, or his horns 52 inches long, or are they only 48? And if you make that mistake, the, you tell the hunter, you know, it's a record book animal, it's 52 inches, you get up and measure it, and it's 48, you're docked for that. You know, you, you piss mm -hmm. that guy off. So it, it was a lot that went into it. Um, six of us passed, and the rest of the guys failed, and a lot of it was writing the law, like you had to know the laws. Um, and then the shooting, the shooting course really – uh, stump some guys because you had to take a 375 caliber or larger and put it in an index card at 30, 20, and 10 meters in 10 seconds with a bolt action rifle. And that, that was pretty, 
pretty challenging um, to do that. But I, I ended up passing the course and and went to um, went and did apprenticeships for the next five years and got with some of the most badass professional hunters from Zambia and Zimbabwe that had grown up in Africa and did dangerous game. And I just studied under them for years and years and years and finally ended up getting my my professional hunter's license and actually did some guiding in Mozambique and Tanzania on my own. And uh, my wife and I, you know, I, I came home after being gone for three months. We'd had our, our first child and, and you know, she kind of gave me an ultimatum and said, look, either you're going to be a professional hunter for the rest of your life or we're going to have a family. It's not going to be both. And, you know, I am, you know, a, a, a family man. And I, I said, yeah, I'll figure something else out. This is too important to me. You know, I'll figure out how to do the hunting stuff and, and you know, not be gone for six months at a time. And so worked it out, started uh, Sporting Adventures International, which is basically like a travel agent for hunters. We book hunts all over the world for people. And, you know, growing up in the South and being a whitetail guy, that has really, from a personal standpoint, always been my passion, whitetail bow hunting. And um, as as that continued and, and, you know, I got home from Africa and it got to be really more and more important um, in, in, in my daily thought process, <clears throat> I knew that I wanted to figure out a way to, to make a living, you know, doing some whitetail stuff and um, other hunting experiences, hunting in the mountains and using some really technical gear that was geared for mountain hunting. Uh, you know, I thought, you know, there's nothing like this truly in the whitetail space, something really technical, really high speed, something that's going to, they always say something that's going to keep you on the mountain longer because something that'll keep you on the mountain longer, you're going to be more successful hunting. And so I thought, you know, for, for me, it's something that's going to keep me in the tree longer. Something that when it's 95 degrees in August in South Carolina and I'm after a velvet giant, you know, I, I'm not going to melt the whole time I'm sitting there. Something that's going to keep me reasonably at a reasonable temperature. And then, you know, something that when you're in Kansas and it's 40 miles an hour and, you know, negative five, that you literally during the rut can sit in a, a funnel and sit there all day and be comfortable. And I wanted to bring that to Whitetail. And um, that's basically what we did with Osseo Gears. We we created a gear line that's made for Whitetail tree stand bow hunters to keep them in the stand longer, to help with their scent control. And the best camouflage pattern, you know, based after a great horn owl, which is the most camouflaged tree predator in the woods that hunts things that have this very similar eyesight to Whitetail deer. And so we developed it and man, it's, it's been a, it's been a whirlwind two years getting it out. And you guys know with your business, you know, what it's like to, to do a startup and it's exciting. It's a hell of a lot of work, uh, but it's, it's a passion and a business that, that I'm proud of and look forward to, you know, taking it on to the next level. Yeah. Like you know, when you first started talking about it, you know, you broad brush that whole how you started it's like i tell him like it sounds like dosecki's guy like joe's like the most interesting dude i know <laughs> like i mean you think about it, like there's no internet you're just clipping out of hunter magazines and just phone calls to south africa to go out there and do that like it's impressive man it is <laughs> but nothing is more impressive than the elephant story mm. like you've got to give the elephant story because i tell it to everybody and i butcher it but like to me like that's a that's one of those professional scenarios. Like, that's why. Yeah. Like, you can't prep for that. 
that course prepped you for that, like all the training, like that drill they had you do. That's why. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's like you, you don't understand that. that when you when I'm you know when I'm twenty. Nope. Why am I shooting thirty, twenty, ten? Uh, it's a it's a charging K buffalo. Well, yeah, it could be, but but absolutely. And and the anatomy of the animals, you know, you just kind of gloss over during that part of the thing. But that zygomatic arch of the elephant that they kept talking about, you're like, yeah, that's where I get it. It's where his brain is. What, what's the big deal? Just you know, you shoot him between the eyes, and it's the end of the story. No, when you're under duress, and everything is slowed down, and you are literally about to die, or your client is about to get trampled, and you throw up a 500 double, a 14 pound rifle, and everything is in motion. You, you find that zygomatic arch, you put the barrel there and then you pull to the middle of the head and that's where the brain is and that's how you end it. Um, and, and yeah, that's what the course and, and really being with those guys that had been there, done that, I'm sure like your team leaders, when you got into, you know, the different squadrons or whatever, the guys that had been there and done it, really paying attention to them yeah. and, and studying under them, not just going off half cocked and letting them tell me when I was ready. You know, I always said that. I said, man, I, you know, dangerous game hunting is a, is a whole nother level. And I'm not doing this until you say, you know, have at it. And they started me slow. You know, I did Cape Buffalo to start with, then a leopard. And then they, you know, turned me loose for flying an elephant. Yeah. Mm. That's crazy. You just paint a scenario for the elephant incident. Yes. So I was with a client from Atlanta booked a 21 day safari and elephant was the top of what he wanted to get. Now, elephant hunting, we can go into all that about, you know, the conservation of elephants. People that's going to rub people wrong, right? Shooting an elephant, but there's a lot to that, a lot to unpack, but the hunter's dollars actually save elephants. An old bull, like the bull that we were hunting, they get six sets of molars and, and it takes about eight to 10 years for one set to grind down. So when they get to be 50, years old all they have to look forward to is a slow starvation that's how they die so when we track these bulls we're looking for dung that is not digested it's still got the full leaves and stuff in it so you know that bull is on his last set of molars and, and all he's going to do i mean hyenas can't eat him you know he, he's going to starve to death so a hunter goes over there and spends sixty seventy thousand dollars to take that animal out it's a trophy for that hunter but then 80 percent of that goes into anti-poaching and elephant protection so it's not like guys, people have a, miscon a misconception of people going out and just slaughtering, you know, elephants. It's just a greedy dude that wants to go out and put these tusks around his fireplace. Very conservation minded. So, I, you know, just to get that out there. But so we're hunting this old bull and we're driving out one morning right out of camp. We'd probably gotten two miles away from camp and I just saw a small gray hump. Probably this was a big open savanna with some hills in it. And I had the drive, we have drivers. I had the driver stop the truck and I climbed up on the bull bars way on top and I glassed and I could just see the hump. And I said, that's a big bull. We need to go take a look at him. So we got all our gear, headed out there to the elephant. And um, the client, the most ethical shot is a brain shot um, because it puts them down immediately. They don't even know what happened to them. And you, you shoot them between the zygomatic arch or right by the ear hole. And they have a temporal gland in between the two is right where the brain sits. 
So we go out, and, and the bull in this area, they, they do get poached some by people in Tanzania come over into Mozambique and poach them, so they hate people. We got the wind right. You know, obviously that was the first thing that we did was get the wind right, circle down. He's in a in a tree eating. We get into like 30 meters from him. We've got these shooting sticks that you can put the rifle on so you're really steady. Get the shooting stick set up. And it's a perfect brain shot right there. I'm like, shoot him. He doesn't shoot. He looks back at me. I'm like, right there. You can see that it, it was, they have musk coming out of the temporal gland. I'm like, right below that musk, that brown shit on the side of his head, shoot him right there. Gets back on his scope, doesn't shoot. Well, the wind starts getting a little bit fickle, and he steps back from the tree, and I think he got a little whiff on us, puts his trunk up, and there's like kind of like a, I don't know, a plateau that, that goes around this way. Well, he turns and starts walking the wind. <coughs> now like this and he starts walking like this and he comes over to that plateau and kind of gets up on it now he's probably 25 yards away from us mm. and now he's starting to figure out what we are now it's, he's frontal and i said man shoot the bull in a full voice and of course he hears me say that and here he comes he starts coming towards us his ears going well, i've seen this before he's about to charge mm. and i said shoot him now and he shot hit the bull, shot him in the head. I thought he brained him. He went down like a classic brain shot where he rolled and got back up. And we're taught to put one in his lungs immediately if that happens. Because if you shoot him in the head and you don't hit the brain, it's just gray matter up there. And you're never going to have a blood trail. The bullet just zipped right through there and didn't hit anything vital. But he's but he's a wounded elephant. You can't have that running around in villages and stuff. So I, I had a 500 double, shot him right behind the shoulder, and um, normally they haul ass, and then your second shot, you're supposed to break their hip. That's what you do, and then you knock them down, and then the lungs fill up, and they expire quickly. He didn't run. When I shot him in the shoulder, he turned around and charged flat out. And he's coming at us, and, you know, you got a 16,000-pound animal that's running at you wide open. And back to the training or the school, I, I had one barrel left, threw up and um, got on the zygomatic arch, came to the middle of the head, touched it off, and his head rocked back, his ass hit the ground, and he fell over. And it literally, from here to those lights right there is where he fell, and it shook the earth when he hit wow. the ground. I mean, it was the most intense shit I've ever been a part of. Oh, you damn right. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was craziness. Like, but to be able to tell that story to a student, like, You've been to Ringling Brothers, brother. Like, you've never seen that thing charge. Like, you don't know what it really looks like up close. You've seen it from 300 feet. Like, just imagine, what is that, 20 feet? Yeah. Like, dude, that's a dinosaur, man. Like, to be able to paint that picture, like, this is why we train. Yes, sir. That's the why. Yeah. Like, we're not talking about the how. We're talking about the why. Like, you have to be able to do that because if you don't, it's going to kill you. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's not it's a paper target. Yeah. yeah. Like, that isn't a, that isn't a, a 50 yard bow shot right now into a, a big ass hay bale. Like that thing's going to kill you in five, four, three, two, boom. Yep. You gotta be able to it's go. It's going to happen whether you want it to or not. He is coming. He smells us. He knows what we are. And he's about to stomp us into his toenails. Yeah, and people think that it's not reality. Like, Oh, oh that's not going to happen. He's like, Oh, you know, I contract Joe. I paid all this money. I flew out here. I'm going to go out here on this, you know, with these guys, I'm going to shoot this elephant. It'd be great. Nope. Not today. It's not your reality. Reality is Joe has to save you. 
Yeah. That's why we paid that money. That's why he did that course. That's why he spent his entire adult life polishing those skills to save you at this moment right now because you didn't believe it was actually going to happen to you. Yeah. That is your reality. Yeah. Joe had to save you because you couldn't save yourself. And the, the, I guess the, you know, you guys always say the professionalism and, and that's true because you've got guys spending thousands of dollars. You, you have to have everything buttoned up. And that really helped me when I got home and started back into the whitetail game. You know, it was a, with your, with your old man in the South, it's traditional. You go out, you do your thing, you have your, your spots, you know, he's, he's helped me out, but it, it wasn't really hunting at a professional level. You know, it was a weekend warrior thing. Um, but after doing that stint in Africa, it, it definitely changed my game and, and, and got me to where it was taking the details really seriously. And, and I, I saw it consistently. I would get better every year. Bigger deer, other states, you know, more destinations, interacting with bigger deer, finding bigger deer. And um, that, that really – I don't know how it was for y'all, but when you when you get into that arena of where you you're, you're finally starting to figure out the game, you know you're 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 starting to hunt at a level that you didn't know you could do. You know you didn't you know man if I if I shoot a a, a 140 that that would be great, but then you get into a, a spot where you're consistently killing Boone and Crockett's and 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 bigger deer with your bow, it just it becomes all encompassing and that's what you want to fixate on. I think one point that we were talking about yesterday that's transferable and relatable to everybody, but I was very curious about that specific event was you said that there was somebody kind of off to your right that was shooting, but you didn't hear anything and you were just solely focused. Like everything's blurred out except that main focus. I mean, I think it's transferable whether you're a mom carrying your kid and you got to draw or in a hunt or your cop or military, it's like you're 100% focused, dialed in, and you're just doing what you did training. It's just real now. And you're prepared for the contingency, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you obviously think you're going to stand there, right. And, and take it on. You, you, you don't think you're going to run. You know, that's the worst thing you could do is run, but that happens. You know, guys get in that position and they, they run. They haul ass, leave their trackers, their client, everything there. That it happens. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I mean, it's all fun and games until it's really there. Yeah. Right. It's like, do you not think that was reality? That's why we did the training. That's why we did a safety brief. I told you that would happen. Yep. Yeah, it's like some people just they don't want to accept it. They want to think that. Yeah, it's just not going to happen. Then that is going to happen. It's happening right now. Yep. <laughs> but I mean. I think it's fascinating. Like, there's consequence to that. Like, if you go out there and your dope is off and you miss, that's what's happening. You got to be a pro. Got to have another round. Got to have a brief. Got to actually do what you say you're going to do. It's no different than CQB or any other stuff we talk about the military side. Like, do you really think you're going to do that? Like, if there was a dude on the other side of that door shooting through it, are you going to do that same thing? Well, no. Okay, well, now we've got an elephant charging you. We all said we weren't going to run. Why did you run? Yeah. <laughs> you didn't think it was a reality? Of course it is. We talked about it for 15 minutes. I told you that was going to happen. Yeah, I mean, like, a lot of the conversation people just don't have. Like, you can save a lot of people with just 
relaying information, like personal experiences with some real color to it, like some real detail, like that's why. Like now that drill makes sense. Now when you see it, you're like, well, I know exactly why I had to shoot from 30, 20, 10 in this timeline. That's why. Because if that happens and I miss the first one, I've got about one, two, boom. Yep. That's why they did it like that. Yeah. Yeah, and what happens if you don't follow the training that you've gotten, right? You're not prepared. You don't have that extra round. And, you know, that all gone, right? That segues into when I came up here to, to train with y'all for something completely different. And, and of course, I learned a lot about, you know, concealed carry and how to draw and stance and grip and everything you guys walked me through from, from A to Z. And, but the, the, really the, I guess the mindset and the, the way you approach things, and I, I'm going to beat this word to death as a professional, I picked that up from y'all right away. You know, y'all said willingness, uh, no, excuse me, it, it, um, awareness, preparedness, and willingness. You know, and, and the other one that really stuck with me was you, you fight in the condition that you're in. That, that relates to, to hunting. You know, you're aware of, of, of what you're doing. You're prepared and you're willing to do it. You're willing to sit in the stand in Kansas in 40-mile-an-hour winds from daylight to dark 10 days in a row. Most guys can't do that. And they can't do that. They're, they're, they're aware that they need to do it. They may be prepared with the gear, but they're not willing to do it. You know, and, and then you, you, you fight in the condition you in, you're in. You hunt in the condition that you're in. And if you half-ass it and you have not tried and tested all your stuff, that's the condition that you're in, and that's what you have to go with, and good luck. But the yeah. things that you can control and you can get better at and you can tweak and learn and, and be a professional at, that is where it gets really exciting because you see what is possible then. Yeah. You, know, you you can you can be the guy that challenges those seven eight year old bucks, and most of the times they're going to beat you, but you got a much better chance. And when you do seal the deal, it's it, it, to me it's nothing sweeter than that. Yeah. When we talk about pressurizing training and our intent behind that is basically the chemical and physical reaction that you experience, which are very similar to hunting, especially shooting that elephant. Um, and that timer, like the shot timer, it's like that's kind of one of the tools that will kind of pressurize and people start getting nervous. They have to perform now, like it's on a timer. But how how do you think we can knowledge transfer hunters um, with that same kind of chemical reaction and body? I mean, like my hands were sweating when you were talking about this bull running at you, and like my heart's jumping on my chest, but like my breathing is like slowing down. It just, I guess, after years of doing it, but how do we kind of help and prep hunters or just anybody in that situation? So that, yeah, the, the buck fever is a real, it's a real thing. Target mm -hmm. panic is a real deal. You, you get drawn, you pull your bow up and you cannot put the pin on the vitals. It locks up and you, you have target panic. That, that's a real thing that, that, that happens to people. And you, you have to get into that focused state that you were mm -hmm. talking about earlier. You have to relax. You have to calm yourself down. It's going to happen and reset and, and you just have to mentally overcome it. I mean, everybody reacts to it differently. Joe, isn't part of it to me at least, 
and listening to what you guys do. And then, you know, I've known Joe for 30 years. And so I've kind of watched him go from that guy in high school up to being where he is now and doing the year. But isn't a lot of it what we've talked about earlier? I mean, the foundation, the details, the preparation, right? Because it's kind of like taking a test, right? We've all talked to our kids about taking a test, right? If you're prepared and you go in, you're going to feel confident. You're going to be ready for it. So is it not, I guess, and this is a question maybe for both of you guys, but isn't the preparation what gets you to a point where you're less likely to have that, you know, buck fever or freeze up because you're going in there knowing I'm prepared. My gear is right. It's ready. I've practiced. I'm in good physical shape. So I am in a, I am in the, you know, I'm, I'm in the best position I can be to mm-hmm. be successful. But I think even talking to you as you came back from these guys, that helped you. Right? Yeah. I mean, you were more confident in your abilities. I mean, that, again, maybe y'all go into that, but it, that's kind of one of the keys to not maximizing what you can control. The things that you can control is 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 maximizing your understanding of it, your proficiency with it, and and your ability to to execute. Um, and and that's that's not sitting in the backyard on the patio with your targeted a known yardage of 30 yards and zipping groups arrows in there. Sure, that's fine. You know, you're, you're, you're getting some reps in, you're getting some conditioning in, you're getting familiar with your equipment. But no, you need to throw the stand up in the backyard. You need to put the gear on. You need to put the safety harness on, the gloves on. You need to put all that on. I mean, you know, you, you got collars on on jackets, heavy jackets. You, you In the summer when you're practicing, those collars can get in the way. You might have to tuck them in. You've got to practice with all that stuff because you don't know what it's going to be like if you don't. And, and what happens? Here he comes and you draw back and your collar's in the way and you let it go and it goes two feet over his back and you've spent all this time, time away from your family, the money on the hunt, and you, you blew it because you weren't prepared. You, you weren't taking advantage of things that you can control. Well, that's a lot of what you guys teach, right? Yeah, I mean, that. It's yeah. unbelievable. Preparation, right? Yeah, I mean, like that Take awareness, preparedness, and willingness, like, that whole concept, um, <clears throat> like that was brought up to me with uh, like, SEAC tactical group, Tom Kyer, it's a bunch of our combative instructors. He do a bunch of edge weapons, but when they went through that whole your awareness, situational awareness, preparedness, how much time have I actually put into being able to deal with all those little environmental changes and social interactions and everything in between, and then my willingness to actually do it. Most people lack on the willingness part. They haven't really put in the time because they've been so focused on learning a skill set by some mindset. When you overlay them, skill set and mindset become one. That's when you really become a pro because now you're training them both equally. Like, yeah, I can sit on the range and I can I can burn through 1,000 rounds of 9 mil. I could go on the range and I could burn through 250 rounds purposeful with intent behind them and get the exact same thing done. And then I have the rest of my day to mentally prepare for whatever I'm getting ready to do. Like a lot of guys, like as soon as it's over, they shut it off and now we're, we're playing Xbox or we're, we're doing whatever. Well, that guy's not, that guy's just on topic all day long. When he drives home out of the stand, he's just thinking about everything he wish he would have done. And he's prepping for when he gets home. As soon as I get home, I'm deconning this. I'm hanging on all my clothes. I'm not washing them because I'm gearing up for tomorrow. I've got to let everything air dry out in the back You know, just everything. All the little details, he's constantly just elevating his game, but he's taking detailed notes. Maybe not physical notes, but mental notes. Ones that you retain over 30 years because he just stays on topic all the time. But that's his chosen profession, whatever it is. If it's surfing, I had dudes thinking about surfing all day long. 
in the middle of that meeting right now when he goes off in that distance. It's like that meme with a, a guy who's rolled over in bed and his wife's rolling the other way. I bet he's thinking about women. He's like, oh, God, I'm thinking about the Broncos game. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. It's no, like that dude's just thinking about his craft. Like he's thinking about the hunt. He's thinking about, God, I know I set my alarm clock for 4.15, but if I get up at 4, that'll give me 15 minutes. Like I'm not going to be in a rush. It'll save me time. Yep, call 4 a.m. Like, you know what I mean? It's not just, there's no arbitrarily doing anything anymore. Like, everything has a purpose because you realize that those little things that everybody else bypasses, that's what makes Tom Brady fucking Tom Brady. Yeah, for like, sure. If you want to do it at a super elite level, like the best of your, not the best in the world, the best you could possibly do, that's what it is. It's being able to do the things that other people just bypass. Yeah. They see it as a shortcut and you're like, I don't take that shortcut because that extra angle gives me more repetitions than you do. Like I don't, I'm not shortcutting that because I understand the journey is the experience and that overlays. That's not worth the 15 minutes I can shave off. Like those 15 minutes are giving me more experience than you. You know what I mean? Like yep. prolonging some of the journey because you realize it's worth its weight. Like I don't have to trim off everything. I don't need to make this hunt two hours. I can make it six because I'm learning. I'm not wasting time right now. You know, I'm a student of the craft, constantly elevating my game. I think that's, that's what it is with everything. It's just surround yourself with people that are better than you and just mirror what they do. Don't copy it. Make it your own. It's the whole knowledge transfer. I can take everything you do and then I just make it my own and I harness it for 30 years. This is my formula. This is what works for me and this is why everything. Like from sock selection, how you tie your shoes, like everything. Like there's a why for everything, but there should be. Yeah, that, that, yeah. Why are you doing it? That, that's that's the main thing I tell guys is, why are you doing it like that? Yeah. I don't know uh, because so and so said said to. Well, why? I mean, you, you've got to have a plan, right? There's got to be an idea of wh where the deer are coming from, where they're going, what wind direction, what all are you working on? I mean, it's got to be a plan in place, and you got to ask yourself why you're doing every step of what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, a lot of guys like. We came down here for you. Like most guys, you know, you show up and you're shooting whatever gun, and that's the gun we shoot. Like we do the grip selection. Like, hey man, like I know we're gonna train with what you brought down here, but you might have the wrong gun for your hand size. Like most people, just they teach you how to shoot because it's a novelty. Like it's not what we're doing. I'm trying to make that thing right because the ownership and the responsibility you have to handle that firearm, especially in a concealed carry fashion, it's monumental. Like, I think it deserves the respect to have every bit of detail put into it. Like, not a not an okay grip. Not a, um eh, stipple's okay. It's okay? <laughs> You're about to save somebody's life with it, or in one. Like, I think it deserves to be a little better than okay. Yeah. Why don't you take 15 minutes and make it to you? <clears throat> like, that's what we talk about. Like, oh, you don't like the stipple on your stock Glock 19? Oh, shit. Why don't you take 15 minutes, get on YouTube, and tailor it to your hand? Take a little file and that little piece that gives you a little notch in your hand you don't like right now, let's bevel it off. Let's make it so it feels like that old baseball mitt you've had for 15 years. When you drive out that gun, it feels like an extension of you. When I draw back my bow, it feels like an extension of me because I took the time to select the bow for me, not what you shoot. Right. What I need to shoot to be able to deliver that arrow right there every time. Yeah, and, and that, you know, I picked up so much of that when I came up here, you know, you guys that are at the 
you know, top of their craft, it doesn't matter what they're in. You know, if they're, if it's Steve Jobs or Jordan or you guys or, you know, whoever, when, when you're around people like that, they operate differently. You know, they, they truly operate daily. The, the way they approach the day is different. And, and man, I picked up a ton of that and it absolutely translated into my hunting season. One of the best ones I've ever had this year, just doing things the right way. Yeah, you know, you get the, the chess, not checkers comparison. Mm-hmm. You a bunch of guys out there playing checkers. Well, that's cool, but nobody's going to remember your name. <laughs> They're just not. Like, you're up there playing checkers all day long, posting on YouTube. Like, no one gives a shit, dude. Yeah. Like, you're only going to take that thing as far as you're willing to go. And right now, you're not willing to put any considerable time. That's why you're an amateur. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it is. Like, you're just not willing to put in the time to become a pro because you think that there's not a real difference. It's like, yeah, you played you played college football for Hampton Roads. You're not Tom Brady. Nope. No, like, there's a big difference, dude. And the way Brady approaches every day, everything that he puts in his mouth, every stretch, every minute of his awake, the time when he's awake, it's purpose-driven. It, it has to be to be at that level and maintain it. Like, if you want to be a one-trick pony, do it one time. That's cool. You did it once. Do it for a career. Do it for 35 years. Yeah. Consistently. Consistently. It didn't have to be fancy to be effective. But I think a full understanding of the why and then an obsession of the how and then marrying them both up, like, it just – it gives you opportunities that most people don't even see. Like, that dude's not even thinking about that. Right. Like, wind direction and thermals. Like, you say at the normal person, like, uh, I mean, I got my Cabela's boots on. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. they went to Walmart and they bought they bought an outfit, they bought overalls, and they walk out in the stand with a soybean field and they shoot a deer. Oh, yeah, they've hit the target twenty times in the backyard. Yeah, no, right? like, when it was yeah. sunny in seventy eight. But right? but that's that, that's little league football. Yeah, right. It's awesome. Nobody wants to play that as a forty year old adult. I, I don't. No, like I don't want to. I don't want to do anything half ass. That's why I tell this dude like, I don't have time for another hobby like if we want to stop doing this and start doing that like i'm in but i don't want to do it half ass i don't do anything 20 percent. let's start eliminating excess noise and let's focus like if you want to go on you want to go crazy you want to start hunting like i'm in we got to start dropping off some stuff because i ain't doing it at 40 percent. like yeah. to me like it deserves it deserves more it just does like i haven't hunted in 20 years like outside of humans i haven't but i mean like i don't have the time to do it half ass i grew up duck hunting I haven't done it since 99. Like I just, I don't have the time and I don't want to, I think that craft, I think, I think that industry deserves you to take it seriously. I think it does. I think the lineage of hunting itself deserves professionals to do it. I do. Yeah, I agree. And, and the excitement you get out of that, the, the, the satisfaction of doing things the way they're supposed to be done and really putting in a hundred percent of your effort. It's rewarding, man. I mean, it, to see the end state, as as y'all say, to, to, to see it. And, you know, you're matching wits with the smartest deer in the woods. Most guys don't even know they're there. And that that's the one that you're you're targeting. And it, it man, it gets me fired up. It mm-hmm. really does. I mean, that's it's it's a passion that's just severe. Yeah. Do you think the environment and I'm kind of comparing the two with kind of the weapon tactical environment and the hunting environment? 
is limiting the individuals because they don't want to get out of their comfort zone or they're embarrassed to ask the right questions or even ask a question in general. So at least what we've seen, like, like the gun stuff, like you come with your guns, like you don't know what you don't know, but I mean, it, it's an awkward environment. Like you decide to finally go in and pick out a gun and it looks pretty, but may not be the right gun for you. And they don't want to ask a question. And now they got this thing that is limiting their performance and they're already embarrassed to be something new and kind of, and I'm kind of relating it to the hunting in a sense of people just picking a piece of gear because they saw somebody shooting it, not the right piece of gear. They're not going to ask the questions. Like, I don't know. I walk into Cabela's or Shields or whatever. It's like, that, that camera looks good. And one, either there's no one there to educate me or the person that's there is not educated or I'm just new and I'm intimidated or you just, picking up a new hobby. Um, but, and we're trying to change that environment. I see a lot of gun companies just in general changing that environment. Um, but you kind of see that in, in hunting as well. Big thing is ego hunting. Yeah. There are huge egos in hunting. So it's, it's my way just because I can't be wrong. You see a ton of that. And then you see a lot of the sponsorship stuff, you know, YouTube Bob has got a YouTube channel and he says, this is the bow that you've got to have, but there's no real why behind that. Or no real proof and um so yeah it, it is uh I, I would say ego is the big thing for guys um and they're afraid that like you say because wait I, he's going to look down on me if, if i ask a question and that's so far from reality right they just for some reason there's an ego thing that i'm a man i should know how to hunt i should know all this stuff and it's not the case man i mean i when i came up here i i check my ego because I knew what I was walking into and I don't care if, if I look like a, you know, a, a dummy, I am a dummy, right. When it comes to what y'all do. And I, I wanted to be a sponge, you know, and, and, and learn as much as I could. And that, that's the mindset for anybody. I feel like in the, in the hunting space that, that wants to get better at it or wants to learn is the first and foremost is to find somebody that's legit that has actually been there, done it. And then ask the questions. And then take what they give and exactly what you say, mold it into your own. Because every every tactic I have for hunting is, is not going to work for everybody. And it, it, it's pretty cool. I mean, I've got a young guy that helped set up your bow in my office. Um, Kevin, he's, you know, 29 years old. And, you know, I, I got him at about 19. So he's been, you know, with me for a long time. And just seeing him morph his hunting, you know, in from never killing a deer with a bow to now going out on his own, finding these public land spots or these these little permission spots and going in there and, you know, hanging his own stands and knocking down a deer and the things he's kind of stepped out of the traditional ways of doing stuff and just seeing him learn, it's it's awesome. I mean, that's super rewarding. I mean, it's like a feather in your cap, like to just knowledge transfer from you to him. Like just a decade, like proofs in a pudding. Like that's what it is when you just – Surround yourself with somebody who knows more than you and just listen to them. Like you can watch little prodigy come up and kind of ship them off. Like it's like to me, I love it. Like we see dudes when it clicks over and you're like, yes, the formula still works. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I love it. It's amazing to me. And I'm lucky enough, right. It's kind of coming up with hunting to have a buddy who I've known so well, I can pick up the phone and call um, or, you know, see him every day. But the transition, and this goes back, I think to your ego statement, right. It, there has never been anything that I've been exposed to with more opinions than hunters. It's just, it, it's mind boggling. Fishers. And, 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 uh, 
and the the pride in whatever that opinion may be. I mean, it can be, oh, well, they're not going to hunt over this. You can't use that food source. You can't hunt there. You know, you, you walk through that woods, you've ruined hunting forever. And so, like, with the tradition, the transition I've made, which has been incredibly helpful having someone like Joe, even though I'm years off from being able to do it the way I need to, but when you're going from that guy that sits up in a 12-foot, you know, blind, and you're hunting over a pile of corn, right, or over some planted turnips or whatever it may be, but you want to become a serious hunter. You want to be the guy who's out doing what Joe talked about earlier, where you're targeting a specific deer, and you want to kill the one that nobody sees. The ability to kind of cut out the noise, you know, to say, well, I'm going to go to somebody who actually knows what the hell they're doing, right? Someone that's been doing this for this long and knows enough to build his own camo line and understands what I need is amazing. And that that's, to me, one of the key things. And Again, I think it transitions back to what I've heard him say about you guys, right? I and mean, again, it's back to the foundations. And it's trusting someone who is going to train you and educate you to do it the right way. You're not training a guy to shoot, right? Y'all don't run everybody through things to shoot. You're training them to react to the situation, to be prepared for what's going to come mm-hmm. instead of just shooting. So to me, I mean, that's just a big thing that goes back to, I think, your ego statement. Yeah, it, it's opinions. And I'm sure it's in the tactical world, too. Opinions, know-it-alls, uh Instagram heroes, false um, prophets. Yeah, you, you, it, it's a, it's a, it's a ton of that. And I, I said this earlier. It doesn't need to be a competition between between hunters. You're competing with an animal. That's the one that's kicking your butt. Mm-hmm. Not because your buddy in Illinois just killed a giant. You know how hard that is. Congratulations to him. Not oh, I feel I feel terrible, man. He he did that the wrong way or what? No, good for him. Now get your butt out there and get you one because you, that's who you're competing against. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, for me, it looks like a lot of guys, they're confusing marksmanship with hunting. Like what you're doing isn't hunting. It's marksmanship. You're, you're going out, you're throwing down corn and you're shooting a thing from 20 meters away from a stand where that deer, like walk out and hand feed that thing. Like that's not hunting. That's shooting. Like to me, that's why I don't hunt. Like there's no difference to me in doing that. Like, like waterfowl's cool. It's not really hunting to me. It's like to me, there's no emotional connection between shooting clay pigeons and shooting a wood duck. Like there just isn't. Like there's the bond, like going out there, morning coffee, like just the bond and the experience. I get that. But that's not hunting to me. That's just shooting. Like shooting a deer from three fifty isn't hunting. That's just that's marksmanship. Yeah. That's knowing holes. Like now to stock up on a deer. It's like stocking up on humans. Like can you count coup? You ever put a hand on that thing? Like, that's an art form. Yeah. Like, sneak up on a deer and don't let him know you're there. Like, the, like Tom Brown. Like, tracker. Like, that's ninja. Like, you can walk up and touch that deer? That's impressive. Well, how do you do that? Every little detail. Every little detail. You think detail. his shoes don't matter? Yeah, shoes matter. Yeah, every little detail. You think his shoes are untied right now? No. <laughs> no, they're not. Yeah, when he when he breaks cover, it's the eight year old buck that you've been after, and he has no clue that you're there. Yeah. It was every little detail that got you there. It can happen. It can get lucky, but mm-hmm. to do it consistently, it's every little detail. It's, it's not cool. taking anything for granted, and not half-assing anything. I got a question. So, I only have my assumptions. What is a camaraderie, culture, environment 
when you come back from a hunt, and I don't mean like finish a hunt, but go back to the cabin, campsite, whatever. I have my experiences, how ours was or is. It's very similar because I feel like people may be missing out on that. And I think it's equally as special um, feeling a part of something. And I don't know if it's accountability either, but just, I mean, the environment and the culture and it's a positive thing. You can sit there and bullshit about how you pissed off your wife because you just went on a hunt trip for 10 days or, or whatever it is, <laughs> but it allows you to cut loose and just take life a little less serious. Have fun. Yeah. You, you definitely have that. You know, some of the guys that, that I actually hunt with are, you know, they're, they're pretty darn serious about it too. So when we get back, you know, at night or whatever, we're still scheming and strategizing and looking at trail camera pictures and maps and saying, no, I need to move this, that, and the other. But when it, when the hunt is officially over and everybody's tagged out or whatever it may be. And yeah, I mean, you know, you've got like-minded guys that, that, um, you know, like to enjoy the success of the, of the hunt. And that's, that's a lot of fun. I guess like you guys flying home from a deployment, you know, I guess while you're on deployment, I mean, you're in the game 24-7. But then when you fly home, it's cheers, let's have a beer. You know, th th this has been a good one. And, and you're right, the camaraderie. I mean, lifelong friends that, that you know, I've, I've met, you know, through, through some hunting shows and stuff that are alpha male hunters that, you know, we hit it off and we, you know, it's – our wives are now friends, you know, I mean, we, we're, we're buddies, you know, lifelong friends that you make, because I think it's, it's a common, you know, it, it's a, it's something that you, you both are so passionate about. You understand each other. And I think that's a big part of it. It's probably great. You guys don't really have to communicate very much. DJ, DJ and I can sit there and enjoy full each other in silence. You have a full conversation <laughs> yep. with them, but a nine now. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Same mm. sort of thing. We're on the same page. Mm. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah, no, no. That it, it, the the bonding there, I mean, and it's you know, you guys are friends with guys like you, right? And you know, if if you looked at my friend set, or, you know, really good friends. I mean, they're they're guys that really take hunting seriously. Yeah, I mean, and all those things just it's one more. Let me talk about file folders. I'm brand new in hunting. I've got five years under my belt. You've got 35 years. Every time I sit down with you and you go story time, that could be just story time with Joe. Or I could actually listen. I could listen to the detail of the story and I could put myself there and I could take your file of information, your experience, and I could drop it in mine because I'm focusing on the things that aren't the things that everybody else is focusing on. I focus on the story where you talk about this particular shoe and how it was terrible for this because it had no insulation. Now we... You're in the stand, and now you're thinking you have frostbite, and i got to come out of the stand early because my feet went, like, whatever. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, I can take out little bits of detail, and I can essentially give myself a real-world experience because I have just enough to overlay yours with mine in a non-biased way. Like, I've never had that, but I'm keeping it in case that, that situation starts to present itself. I have an answer for it. At least I have something to do. I'm not just, not just waiting for the full thing to develop. I can get three-quarters way through, and like, I remember when Joe was talking about these shoes, like these things feel like shit right here. I'm not wearing these things more and I can kick them off. Yeah. Right. I just, to sit there and be part of the conversation, but taking notes out of the conversation, we're not just letting it pass in one ear and out the other, like digest everything they're saying, like every person you can learn from. 
especially if they're in your same field, whether they're good or not. Good instructor or bad instructor, you can learn from everybody. That's what we do a lot. Just students, like I was a hard student to teach, man. I was. I was hard. I have to do it. Repetition, repetition. I have to watch you do it. I don't need for you to really tell me, but I need to watch you over and over and over. Like it takes me a long time to learn, but once I do, I'll just obsess over it until I make it my own. Mm-hmm. And it takes me longer than more people, but I don't care because it'll take me a decade. But after that decade, I'll have it. You got it. Yep. You got it dialed. And I'll make that thing real special. Like I'll make that thing my own. Yeah. But it takes me longer, but I don't care because I enjoy the progression. Like that's what we talk about more than anything. It's like you can't rush that. You can't rush the progression. You can't just, well, I know, Joe, I'm going to go buy all this gear and I'm going to let's go to the Curtis stand and go hunt. No. There's a, there's a major progression. And that's part of it. It's how you get the experience. And it's surrounding yourself with people that are fixed on it, like um, martial arts guys, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Oh, Cole's a really good wrestler. Like he grew up wrestling. Let's just give him a let's give him a black belt. He's a good dude. Like, yeah, you can do a couple chokes. No. You ruin the entire legacy of everything when you do that. When you try to rush the progression, we see it skydiving, everything. It's like people want to do this one thing. Like, I really want to do a two-mile shot. Okay, for what? Well, I want to do this hunt. Well, hey, brother, you're 425 pounds. Like, you're not going on that hunt. It's at 10,000 feet. And the wool. Well, they get their feelings hurt. That one-trick pony concept doesn't work in reality. There's a physical component to that one. Yeah. You want to be a pro, you got to do the whole thing, not just part of it. Yeah. Like, that's what people don't want to hear. Yeah, they, uh, certainly they don't want to hear it in the whitetail game. Oh, I don't need to be in shape to, to, to whitetail hunt. I, I couldn't disagree with that more. Well, not if you're hunting sea level in a five-acre plot with a feeder. Right. Yeah, you, don't, yeah, you don't. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you're not hunting. Right. You're shooting. That's it. It's a big difference. Like, I shoot all the time. We're about to go shoot this weekend. It's not hunting. It's not hunting humans. It's not hunting whitetail. It's nothing. You're an amateur. That's why you just shoot. Big yep. difference. Big I, difference. I, I think, like, verbiage matters. The words coming out of your mouth matter. The details matter. Like, you're not hunting. You've never hunted, actually. You've walked out there and stood in that stand, and you've shot things. You've shot things. You haven't hunted anything. Like, hunting to me is a mindset more than than a physical thing. It's what it is. Like, I'm doing my homework. Like, I'm hunting you. It's not a physical thing. I can hunt you on the internet. I build an entire dossier on you. It takes me six months to build, and I know everything about you. I'm hunting you. There's no physical component to it. If I decide to go do the action, now I've completed the cycle. But it's the preparatory work that I think is what most people, they don't do. And I'm just like, the same way you hunt a whitetail. Like, you've got this monster dude. I'm doing the exact same thing for you. Got to find out where you live. Got to find out where you go. Got to build your whole little pattern of life. Then I've got to be able to dissect it and then ambush you at any point throughout the day. That's, that, that is exactly right. And that's the parallel I saw. Again, apples and oranges. I mean, you, you guys are hunting things that shoot back. Deer don't. But the parallel to the way you prep for those missions is the same if you want to hunt whitetail deer at a high level. It's no difference. So, and people will, everyone's argue, people say there's no parallel. They're like, well, no, because they're in the military and they shoot people and, you know, they can kill them. Okay, exact same scenario, but now you're not allowed to kill him. You ever tried capturing a dude 
who's got a team of six people with him, all armed with AK-47s, and you can't kill him? There's a hunt. Why don't you come get this dude you can't kill, and then he looks like everybody else. You don't really have a photo of him, so how are you going to get him now? You're not allowed to kill him. That's a hunt. Yeah. Wow. Do your homework now. Launching to some weird foreign country in the language you don't speak, people that don't look like you, and try to steal that guy from six people armed to the teeth trying to protect him. Go do that one. That's a hunt. Yeah. Like, tell me details don't matter now. I think that's one of the things I'm most excited about. It's like, I know that feeling. And I can't wait to hunt. And I think that's why I'm like, I've gravitated towards bow hunting as well. It's like, you have to know everything and like the stock, like the gear, the shoes, the clothing, the wind, everything. It's a ton that goes into it. And when you get that, when you take that trail camera out and you put it out and you get that deer, he comes slipping through there and you see the, and you're like, that's the one. That's the target. How am I going to get him? I've got to obsess and fix. Then you pull out the maps. You're looking at the trees. You're looking. All right, he, he showed up on the camera at 7 o'clock in the morning, and you need to know every day what the wind direction was. You need to have a log or look at a weather app where you can back. He was comfortable walking in daylight on this trail with a north wind. So I get another north wind, and I'll be on the south side of that. I get a north wind, 7 o'clock, same barometric pressure, you know, same moon position. And he shows back up on that trail because you did your, you know, you did your homework. That's oversimplified. It doesn't always happen like that. But those are the things you look at. Why did he show up there when he did? What was he doing? Was he going to bed? Was he going to feed? Was he in the rut? Was it random? Did something spook him and run him through there? Or wait a minute, I've got five pictures of him in daylight. This is his, this is his secret spot. He has no idea I know he's there. And then you roll in and get him. Yeah. You, you just said in 30 seconds, like what we've been talking about for what, two hours. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really was kind of what it takes to get there with all the prepping, the planning, which is exactly what you're saying, right? What y'all are already prepped for that mindset, right? That's the mindset you go into with it. And to be able to do all of what you just said in 15 seconds, which would take me 30 minutes to unpack and figure out is unreal, right? I mean, that level of detail to get it. Um, the one thing y'all have kind of, I think, kind of touched on a little bit that seems to permeate everything is kind of the physical fitness side of it, right? I mean, you talked about it. Um, <clears throat> and for anybody that's ever put, you know, uh, a lock on stand up, up a tree, particularly, you know, South Carolina, when you're doing it, what, in July? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you don't appreciate physical fitness, I mean, it's something that cannot be overstated. And clearly, it's vitally important to what you guys do. Kind of talk about that, right? I mean, what the yeah, you, you know, we'll get blowback on this and I don't care, right? Guys are going to say you don't have to be in shape to, to do it. Well, if, if you're doing it at a high level and you're hunting a lot and you're not physically fit, you're going to take shortcuts. You're going to climb up in the tree and there's going to be a an angled branch that you have to climb over or hang on with one hand, pull the stand up over the top. You're not able to do it. So what do you do? You hang under that limb and you saw it and you've taken all your cover out. And they're going to skylight you and they're going to see you when you walk by because you weren't physically fit. You weren't able to do it. And, and again, it's one of those things you can control. And the better shape you're in, the better you're going to perform. And if you go on a 10-day hunt and you are mobile hunting and you're hanging and banging every day, you're pulling your stands down, you're going to the next, you wear out and you quit. You give up because you're not in good shape. You can't do it. You can't physically do it. What about even backing it off a little bit, right? I mean, how many hours do you spend – 
in the woods when it's 98 degrees, figuring out where you're going to put it, carrying gear. Yeah, uh, often. You know, I have two or three trail cameras in a pack, all my, all my stuff, my stands, my sticks, pole saw, and just go. And if you're not in good shape, that's not going to happen. No. So even getting you, to the you'll, point, you'll, you'll take shortcuts. Right. And you'll convince yourself that it's okay. It's okay for it to be that low. No, it's not. If you don't get up higher in that canopy, they're going to see you. Well, I can't get up in there because I can't physically climb over that limb to get the stand where it needs to be. We're talking about inches, right? I mean, just little things that are going to gonna take your game to the next level. And physical fitness, damn sure, is one way to do that. I mean, yeah, physical fitness doesn't matter for hunting. Not at sea level, not on a five-acre ranch, it's fenced in with a corn feeder. No, it doesn't. But if you want to do anything that's an actual hunt, there's a physical component to it. Yep. You're not shooting it two miles like you have to physically get there like when you and vernon trained up for for your big hunt on the china border like what elevation were you at Eleven thousand feet Eleven thousand feet show me a dude who's ever walked at eleven thousand feet and tell me physical fitness didn't matter oh you won't find a single person you'll only find people at sea level because you've never been to eleven thousand feet because you ain't got the physical stamina to even get there you ain't got the work ethic to book the plane ticket to fly to eleven thousand feet and have the balls to get out of it and actually walk that's yeah. a fact. You just don't. It won't be better. Like my first deployment to Afghanistan, I'd never been there. We had three rotations in Iraq, and I got off that airplane, and my heart dropped. I was so taxed unloading bags out of a fucking airplane. I couldn't believe it. Like we went out and played uh, speedball, <laughs> like football. And dude, the first round, I was like, oh, this is very different. This is, <laughs> this is not going to be good. And all the old guys that have been doing these rotations, you see them getting ready for it. I'm young, I'm in shape, altitude ain't going to be a thing, I'll acclimate really fast, we're good. You're not good. Nope. You're not good. All these dudes that are in their 40s are on Stairmasters with VO2 max machines because they know what it's going to take. And they all have body armor on, they're not running, they're training for the job. They're training because they know that you can't beat the elevation. You have to walk from here to there. It's 10 kilometers with 135 pounds of shit on, and once you get to said location, the hunt starts. Yeah. Like, the hunt isn't taken into consideration the physical labor to get there. And that target knows that environment. He's comfortable in it. Yeah. The deer, the deer as well. Yeah. That's his home. That's, you know, the, the target you're going after. You got to be there with enough in reserve to actually continue the hunt for 10 days. Like, that's a long time, dude. Yeah. You're humping everything in and out. That's a huge physical component. Now you have to kill the animal and bring that out with you. Yep. Like how much does that thing weigh packing it out? Oh, you, you have, you have, you know, you're probably bringing 80 pounds of meat a person and then all your gear on top of that. How much you slick on the way in or how much everything on the way in? 50, I try to keep my pack right at 50 pounds. It's a lot of weight to move at 11,000 feet, man. Yes, sir. I mean, we talked about it earlier. Like we were saying eight steps, stop and take a break. People that have never hit a level of physical exertion to where you don't think you can make it, like when you start second-guessing your legacy and your name, like, I might have to quit on the side of this mountain 11,000 feet. I might have to dump this animal out just so I can make it home alive. Call in the helicopter, yeah. Like, people don't know what that physical exertion looks like. Like, you've never been there. You've never been in the ocean and think, I might actually drown. Like, I might drown surrounded by all these people here because I'm so exhausted, I'm not going to make it. People just haven't hit that before, and once you do... You realize there is a physical component to everything. 
And more often than not, it's the difference. It yeah. keeps you alive. Yeah. For, I mean, you know, for, for, for whitetail, what's it going to hurt? <laughs> if you're in, if you're in great shape, how's that going to hurt you? It it's can only help you. Only help so you. So why in the hell wouldn't you do it? Yeah. Like no one, no one dies from being in too good a shape. And I'm not talking about being an Olympian. I'm not talking about being Mr. Olympia, some bodybuilding. I'm talking about a C average student. Yeah. Just <clears throat> don't say, no, I can't do that. We can't do what? Like just walking around with an extra 60 pounds of fat benefit me in any way for hunting. Nope. So get rid of it. Yeah. So another thing you can control. Exactly. Like it just, it makes you better. I mean, and if we're, we're talking about a universal, like it makes everybody better, like more in shape. It gives your kids a better role model. It helps them perform better in school. It just, it it does. It, it doesn't hurt you in any way. None. And it just shows you're a professional. Like you care. If nothing else, it gives you a distraction from all the other negative shit in the world. Yeah. Get you off the bottle, get you eating right. makes you feel better. You know, like it's, being physically fit isn't a bad thing. No, but I feel like we need to go work out again. But <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> do, you, do you think people, uh, when they say they're good enough, those are the people that like maybe shoot a deer a season? That's great. Like they may be happy and awesome. <clears throat> but if you want to actually hunt more, shoot more, that can kind of correlate that to some of the physical fitness and. I'm going to interrupt you because I want to give an example for you because uh, you can talk about Vernon. So Vernon's been doing <clears throat> Joe's workout and I work out with him so I can watch him. I watch what he does. And there's that one exercise where you hit the um, bite and then get off and take four. So Vernon's programming, shooting him for him. And I'm watching it. I'm going, awesome. well, yeah. like, it, and I never really, and now I get it, right? I mean, again, because you don't know when that deer is going to come out. And again, you're fighting that panic, which is an elevated heart rate. Your breathing goes up and he's replicating that in the gym, watching him shoot that. And, you know, this is a guy that can go out in any condition and, I mean, and just pop the middle of that target no matter what. But putting that stress condition under it, again, makes that much of a better hunter. So didn't mean to interrupt, but I think to your question, I mean, watching that training, again, what you guys do and what where you've come in through this, I mean, that has to make you better. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, you're elevating your heart rate on the bike, you're elevating your breathing, then you got to hold it steady and you got to put it in, in the vitals. You got to basically... You know, they say it's a nine-inch circle. I've got to make it a six-inch circle. you got to put it in there, 42 yards, 36 yards, five yards. You know, all that's all that's different. And you got to do it from an elevated position. Um, and, you know, for, for a guy that's, you know, back to your, your point or question, you know, I, I'm good enough. Well, I'm not. You know, I I got a lot, I, a lot further to go. You know, I want to go and I want to – get to a point that I can mix wits with a buck. And if I stay on him long enough, I'm going to get him. You know, if, if I find one and I, I can dedicate, you know, enough time, I want to be good enough that I got a really damn good chance of getting him. That might, what I'm correlating to too, is like probably a lot of hunters are like, what can I do to be better? And they just don't know. Right. Physical fitness is a huge component. Now you're physically fit. You're gonna you're gonna move your stand. Mm-hmm. You're not gonna be like, oh man, I'm gonna get way out of breath, super tired. I'll just sit here and you don't see anything. But now you're physically fit. Take it down. I'll move. We'll get back up. Back to your point too. It's like, could you imagine somebody being out of shape, deciding to do that? Go put it up. They finally see the buck they have to shoot. They can't pull their bow back or hold it steady. Or move it. Yeah. Move it to where it needs to go. Mm-hmm. You know, I've moved them. I've moved them at night. 
I saw the buck break cover 100 yards away through the timber. Oh, shit, that's where he's bedded. Right there. I thought it was here. That's where he's bedded. When he sneaks back in there in the morning, I'm going to kill him because he has no idea I'm here. So you bre- you've sat all day. You break it down. You move it into there. He doesn't always come back, but a lot of times he will. He'll come right back to that spot. And, it, and with being, nope, I'm climbing down. I'm getting out of here. I, it's going to be dark. I don't, you know, I, I just can't do it. I physically can't do it. I'm out of here. Maybe he'll come back. You know, you make excuses mm-hmm. for why you won't do things because you're out of shape and you don't want to do it. And one of the things we talked about is like uh, some people don't know the why. Like, well, why would I need to be in good shape? Talk about the, drawing the bow back. Well, now because you're lackadaisical, you didn't do your homework, you weren't expecting him to come out of there and all of a sudden that deer you've been waiting for a month and a half for is sitting right there at 15 looking at you. And now you have to be able to draw this bow back that takes you 45 seconds to actually draw it. Can you hold that position without... Like, you don't have that. You have to have the strength to sit there and stare this thing in the eye and draw that thing back all fucking day if it takes it. Yeah, like the professionalism. Like I've been waiting for this moment. I've been training. I got a fucking personal strength coach to make sure I can do this. Those aerosol bikes, like that's what we're talking about. Like a dead exhale. I exhale, and now I get on the bike as fast as I can, and I only make it ten seconds. Those ten seconds feel like your lungs turn inside out. Now draw that bow back and hold it for sixty. Like you know how hard that is. Yeah, but it's like that's a usable skill set. Like that is simulating buck fever so realistic. That's as real as I've ever felt. And we do it with the pistol with band tension. Same bike sprints. Now we draw the pistol and it's like front sight post. Like I can barely keep it together. But that's what it feels like when you have to hold a, a weapon on a person that you haven't immediately shot. Now it's you're waiting for them to do something. That, it's buck fever all the same. Yeah. It doesn't matter. But we can train it. Like I can make it so realistic in my preparation that when I get to that moment, I. I have 400 reps of buck fever holding my bow for 60 seconds. Yeah, there's one one guy can do it and yeah. one guy can't. Guess what? The guy that can, he's <laughs> the ones that kills the deer. Yeah. Like, and, and you could have done it if you had trained. It gives me the confidence that I can set her and I can hold this position because I'm physically aware. Yes. Like, I know where my weak spots are. Like, I know my shoulder's jacked up and I know my bow draw. Like, I have to flare out an elbow. Like, I've got to be aware of all these different things. And it's like physical fitness like you won't have the body awareness you won't understand you won't understand how to get up that ladder and not make a single ounce of noise that's because you can support all your weight on one leg and you understand as you extend what your pants are doing and the noise signature it makes because you're a professional you're taking all of that in like you remember that movie uh sherlock holmes where he's like doing the robert downey jr's like doing the math equation pre-fighting yeah season come through that's what it is for 90 percent of what you do whether you realize it or not it's like the angles and distance how many steps does it stand how many steps up where's my articulation like what are my fields of view like everything just a running math problem all day long and everything you do and most people they overlook it they take it for granted they don't realize that much detail goes into your thought process for shoe selection right well you wouldn't because you're not obsessed. Yep. You haven't thought about it enough. I was just thinking about his incident when you talking about you see a buck and you're slowly pulling the bow back. I've just subconsciously been thinking about like, well, when I practice, you know, pull the bow back, I aim, I shoot at it. What if that moment, the only reps you've been doing is like, well, yeah, I pull the bow back, I pull up the sight, like right there, vice, like the slow pull. You're not looking for your sight because you got to look at the deer. 
and you're just pulling that sight up to your eye line and now that's the first time you're doing it now i'm like well now shit like i now when i'm going to practice i need to practice that yeah, oh so yeah, but, the first time I mean, obviously you're super novice, but like I'm, again, you got to get the you got to get the form down, and you got to shoot and have fun with mm-hmm. it, enjoy it, get accurate with it, and understand how to reset your sights. But then that's when you can start breaking out of that stuff and getting in a real world situation. You know, if you're going to do an elk hunt, you got to be able to shoot up, you got to be able to shoot down. You know, because you're in, you're in the mountains, right? You got to be able to shoot through little small holes in the woods. You know, just zip an arrow right through there. Um, well, that's going to change the arrow weight we were talking about earlier, right? Yeah. I mean, you may shoot a heavy arrow that gets good penetration on the on the range, but when you're up there elk hunting at twelve thousand feet, and you got to hunt, you, you're move mobile and you pop behind something, and all of a sudden that arrow drops, hunts over. Yeah, it, it absolutely can be. So all that goes into, but it's ballistics, and you know, I mean, you, you're going to be good at this quickly. You're just making me real excited. <laughs> you know, I always want, want to tell stories. Um, and I'm not as good of a storyteller as you are. You're a fantastic storyteller. But, you know, when you ask a question like how do people react, I can go back to kind of when Joe first rejoined our hunt club and you were talking about it earlier. You know, we had, people had killed some nice deer, but, you know, nothing spectacular. Joe comes in. And when was it you killed that first deer? Remember, we when, when I went with you and we pulled out of the woods. That was early, wasn't it? Like September? It was October. It was cold. October. Um, killed one with a damn split time, brow time. Beautiful deer. No one had seen a split brow tine deer on that property in three years. We had never seen it. And this joker comes in and he kills it. And every member of the hunt club's going, that lucky son of a bitch. And I freely admit, I probably said it too. But I look now and I'm like, he ain't lucky. <laughs> He's not lucky. And I said, you know, now, I mean, Joe kills eight deer a year and eight mature bucks a year because he's doing it 12 months a year. You know, and mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's really amazing to watch and to say, well, God, you want to be successful. That's what you got to do. I mean, it's true. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's just like with what you guys do. I mean, it's again, putting all those little details in things that I don't do, things that most hunters don't do. And when you're ready and you get that stuff done, I mean, the feeling, I mean, I haven't killed a big one with a bow, but just seeing one. Saw that big one last year that in his stand, <laughs> where he told me to hunt on what day. And I saw it. And I mean, it was the highlight of my hunting life. I didn't even get to shoot it, but it's cool. Me and me and Cole went through training in uh, 2003-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, went out to Kodiak, Alaska, did winter warfare training, but it was actually summertime, so it's like a it's like a rainforest, man. Like cold up top, but I mean you're going through some some serious stuff. But I remember sitting in that classroom, and they had one of the instructors. He wasn't even a SEAL; he was a diver actually, but he taught mountain warfare, and and he sat down with all our gear, everything we were issued, and he starts talking about usable weight useless and this and that and zippers and um all this ancillary stuff you don't need cutting out tags of gear and he came out with a ziplog gallon bag that weighed three pounds and he drops it on the table and he's like that's nothing he's like so it's no purpose zero he's like you're going to carry that everywhere you go three pounds of nothing can't do anything with it so there's no purpose right now and after looking back and it like yeah the tags were were his it was like his unit of measure, but it was really the obsession over the details, like the professionalism. And I remember him showing how to break in boots. He had a Capella's boot, like breaker in thing, like this little machine. And he was talking about hot spots and he was grinding. Like it was like a, a hockey shop. Like this guy's sharpening your skates, but this dude is breaking in your boots and he put them on. He's like, do you feel something right there? I'm like, 
I do. And he's like, yeah, I can feel it with my finger. He's grinding it away, making it right. He's like, when we get out there, there's no coming back. You get a hotspot in 15 minutes, like you're going to have it for 10 days, bro. He's like, do it right, right now. All the old school tricks, spraying with salt water and just all this weird stuff we'd never seen before. And it's like, that's what it is. He's like, don't need this, shit can that, bring this, don't bring that. I mean, just every all the little things like you don't need to bring three of those. You're only going to use one. You can't put three on. No. Just save the weight. Save this. Only what you need. But just the, the shoe selection, like the proper breaking in of a pair of boots before you go. Like people don't think about it until you get out there, until you rub your heel off. Like grab dudes in the army, like guys who ruck for a living, like where that's your selection course that you walk with weight on. Yeah. Tell me shoe selection doesn't matter. Yeah. You, you ruin your fate. It is. It's over. It is awful. Yeah. It's like, awful. It's terrible. But like, like when we were going through some of your gear, like noise, noise reduction, like it's not Gore-Tex. Got to be able to account for it. Excess material, like that XL is sized for a true XL. It's not just, you know, it's not tripled in size. Now I just have all this extra material. People don't think about that. Like the gap between my bicep to my lat, all this extra material when I get to draw that bow back or like um, Cole was showing that demo working through a new like rain jacket. When people walk around concealed carry with this big overshirt on, well, how are you going to draw that pistol? Like you're not just going to lift that thing up. It's not how that works because now you have a t-shirt on underneath it. Now you got two layers of garment in one pull. It's like nobody ever talks about that. How big it is, how soupy it is. Now you're trying to draw back and I've got all this extra material, just all the little ancillary things that could be solved with just gear selection. Good Sitting gear. And yeah. looking at it, trying it on, be like, <clears throat> it's too big. It's too small. It's, it's too whatever. Like it makes too much of a noise signature. The rain component. Like you ever heard how loud Gore-Tex is in the rain? Like for me, honestly, like depending on the rain or whatever we're doing, like I'd rather just be wet and not have that thing echoing inside my head because I can't hear shit. Sounds like I'm inside of a hurricane. Like, I'm not getting anything done with that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, just the overall gear selection. But that's what I said when you first broke out that camo. Like, I knew exactly what that was. Like, that is a cool pattern. Like, the great one, it makes sense. Yeah. Like, that totally makes sense. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a natural predator. Yeah. And, and, you know, in the woods, there, there is no better camouflage. I mean, nature made him like that, to catch things with his claws. Yeah, dude. I mean, that's badass. Mm-hmm. And, and so why, why not copy the best tree predator in – in the world. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what they are. And yeah, so we just stole his camouflage pattern. But even like, you know, when we were talking about some of the jacket stuff, uh, the attention detail you went into, that's a we go in. Like designing gear, like the exact reason it has to be just like this. And it's like the zipper pockets you do or, or why this has to be there. And, you know, uh, are the zippers down? Are they up? And, well, Cole, like we like our zippers down because we don't have the shoulder articulation to bring them up. So we think about that under duress. Like, now I've got all my gear on. I'm not even going to be able to open this thing because I can't get my shoulders up that high. Like, he thought about that when we're sketching on the white paper. Like, it's a conversation we have the forethought before we go into product design. Like, everything you've ever complained about that, you tried to solve. That's right, like, yeah. we appreciate it. Like, we see that from even consumer side. Like, we go in there, we buy a piece of Under Armour or whatever. Like, when you put on a T-shirt that fits really well, like, there's a dude who spent his entire adult life trying to make that t-shirt blank fit just like that. And I appreciate it now. Like now I get it. I'm like, 
That dude's, that's his knowledge transfer. The detail you put into that jacket, I don't see it from a camouflage perspective. I don't see it from a hunting or gear design. I see it as a knowledge transfer. Every detail in that thing you poured your heart and soul into out of 35 years of experience. Yep. So I see the zipper for what you're trying to eliminate by putting it in that exact location. That's what I see. Yeah. And that's what I appreciate. The attention to the detail you go. Like not just one size fits all and XLs, XLs, XL. It's not true. Like to give you the articulation, the tailorability, like cinch straps and be able to contour this thing to your body because it matters. Excess material doesn't get better with time. It doesn't. It gets worse. Yeah. It gets hot. It gets, it gets bunched up. Yeah, it gets in the way, man. Like just design it right. Everything you need it to do, like build a better mousetrap. That really is. Uh, it's amazing, you know, again, coming um, from a guy never paid that much attention to the clothing I was wearing. And as I was getting more into the bow hunting, and when Joe finally came out with this, you know, I'm used to carrying a backpack up and I've got all my crap in it, whether it's binoculars or range finders, you know, whatever it may be. And I remember the first time getting out of the truck and I had it on, I was like, shit, I don't even need a backpack. Because I can fit range finders here, my binox here, I got my knife here. And I was 10 times more comfortable. And uh, I mean, it just made everything better. I mean, it, and it's that knowledge transfer, right? I mean, you get guys doing it for 30 years. He's put 35 years of thought into what you're going to put on. So my dumbass doesn't have to think about it. Right. You know, it just works. Yeah. Like you don't yeah. have to relearn all those lessons. Yeah. Like, I don't have to spend 35 years screwing it up. Yeah. He's helping you through the process. Like that's yeah. not a transfer. 35 years of ownership and accountability went into that product design doesn't have to be a transferable skill all the time. It can be through just that. Just yeah. by looking at that product and understanding the functionality, you're going to learn something about the insect. You're going to learn something about the hunt just by him going into the detail of every feature on that thing. Like, why are the zippers like this and not that? Yeah. Well, because this one time in Kansas, he tells you a story. And you're like, oh, man, that would suck. <laughs> okay, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Right? Like, there's a reason for everything. And that's where you surround yourself with professionals. They can tell you the why right away. And if they can't, it's because it's made up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's exactly right. If they can't tell you, like, ah, just do it, just do it. It's not who I surround myself with. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, you guys can do that. You're just not hanging out at my table. Right? Like, I don't want a part-time dude anymore. Like, we're done. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, if you can't tell me the why, if you're not passionate about it, like, don't even come over here. Like, I don't have time for it. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to wear your camouflage jacket because you remade woodland camouflage. Like, some thoughts and some ingenuity, some passion behind it. Yeah. Like, I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, a good awesome. pattern will uh, help you. It's almost like a good golf club, right? It's mm -hmm. forgiveness so you, your bad shots aren't quite as bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, another example of my maybe mistakes I've made, and I think I even called you after I did it, I had bad stand placement. I was in a bad spot. Two does come within 10 yards of me. And I had just gotten the gear. I'm sitting there and they're staring. I think I sent you the video. They're staring at me. They knew something was there, but they had no idea what it was. And it didn't scare them off. They sat there and they looked at me and they put their head down and they, and they look at me and they put their head down, but they never left. I was, you know, from me to you from those two deer. Terrible stand placement, but because I had good stuff on, I didn't ruin the hunt. I didn't kill them, of course, but it was. You were in the game. I was in the game. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. An active participant. Yep. I'm going to tell my kids, just be an active participant in the family right now. Just 
Give me a little bit. Just give me a little bit right now. <laughs> if you figure out how to get them to do that, please, that'll be a knowledge transfer I want to tune oh, into. You'll be the richest man on earth. I, do, I was telling everybody, like I was my eight-year-old trying to get her off training wheels. Just she had no desire. So I turned around. She's eight. And I'm like, I failed you. <laughs> I failed you as a father. I apologize. Let's go fix this. And I tried to, I tried to wing it. I tried to walk outside and just push her down the street and let her go. And she's just like me. That's not how that's going to work, old man. Not today. <laughs> it's going to be some details here. Yeah, man. So I went into YouTube and I YouTube how to teach your kid how to ride a bike. And there was a guy on there and he said, I'll teach your kid how to ride a bike in 60 seconds. Okay. I'm in. So you're supposed to get said bike. You hold the handlebars. You put front tire between your legs and you put the pedals at 50, 50 dead center. And you put their feet on the pedals, hands on handlebars, and you have them look at you. Ready? You relax your legs, and the bike starts to tilt, and they put their foot down. Same thing. Back on 50-50. Relax, and you let her go on this side. She puts her foot down. Same thing. Over and over. It's just that motion. Mike. Okay. Get her in the driveway. Ready, set. Put her down. Coast right off. She makes the turn. Puts her feet down, and she falls over. She doesn't know how to pedal. Taught her how to balance. I taught her how to stop. I didn't teach her how to pedal. And now I can't teach her. Like she's not grasping the concept of pedaling. It took me 45 minutes, almost pulled my hair out. Like almost quit. Like I'm almost in tears, man, because I hate failing. And I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to be like dad of the year. Like I'm trying to lose my mind. I'm like, I just can't articulate. Like I don't know. I don't know how to dumb it down enough. I just don't. I'm just sitting there. I'm like, what would I need right now if I've never ridden a bike? I can't give her uh, a clutch to, to gas concept. I can't give her a 50, 50. She doesn't know what I'm talking about. She has no idea. I'm like, what would DJ need right now? <laughs> He'd need all the details. What, what does he need? I set her down and I put her feet in my hands. I was like, I'm going to resist you. And I want you to push down your right foot. And I resisted it <laughs> more, more. And I start resisting. I was like, all the way. And then we start playing this dance where feet are making a revolution. Over and over, and I was like, that's like the pedal. We've got to drive it, and we have to release with this leg to allow it to make a circle. You understand now? We're practicing, practicing, practicing. I was like, you got it, you got it? Got on top of the driveway, a little five-degree slope, go. She hits the bottom. I was like, push. Straight down the road. Got it. And that is how the okay. SEAL Team 6 got to Okay, I was like, <laughs> Yeah. like, like, I'd say I'm a terrible instructor, but it's like that concept, like th that's what I would have needed at that moment. Yeah. Like I, I learned how to ride a bike out of trial and error because I remember back, like I didn't get the pedal concept. I'd go to pedal and I'd fall over. Like I couldn't get the release on the opposite side and I didn't have anybody to teach me. Like that's what my kid needed. And like she needed that detail. She needed to be able to feel it. So we talked about, I did a, a YouTube video talking about knowledge transfer. And it was like, if I only had one opportunity, if there was a gun to my head, if your daughter doesn't ride that bike 60 feet, I'm going to shoot you. You have five minutes to teach her a class go. It's kind of how we approach training. Like I'm never going to get another opportunity to teach this guy that drill ever. The last time he ever hears it, I'm going to give him hundred percent right now. It's like that level of detail, like that level of the hunt, the commitment, the mission planning, like the focus, a universal approach that overlays on multiple different sections. Like the detail you go into gear design, I take those details, that overall concept, like the details nobody else focuses on, and I do that with my kid to teach her how to ride a bike. 
it's like being able to go the extra mile with kind of that universal concept. I feel like we have the most success out of that. But dude, it's hard, man. Like yeah. you get some people like they're hard to teach. It's like, so you've got to be able to, to not dumb it down, but give them digestible little blocks that will stick with them. Like, okay, I'll get that one. But yeah. Riding bikes. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. No, it wasn't. I think some of the knowledge transfer, um, is so relatable in so many different facets. When you start talking with somebody like DJ and I, I can only imagine it's natural as well. You know, good hunting partners or crew. Always like, ah, I tried this gear, I tried that gear. Like, how's this working? You're growing your friendships, like you said, lifelong ones, and comfortable with each other. And um, then all of a sudden, you're like, man, like me and my wife going through issues. And then your buddy's like, well, yeah, me too. What do you mean you two? I felt like I was the only one, or like my kid, or or whatever it is, kind of personally, and like kind of the environment that it creates one to know that you're not alone but two almost to help in that that instance like the obsession of the details whether it's hunting shooting and how transferable transferable it is to home and family life yeah and like it's a safe environment like i can kind of we can have these awkward conversations that we don't want to have with a group but it helps marriage being a father and it's been big for me yeah well, it's i mean in it, it really is all that right i was talking about earlier and I think you mentioned this in your podcast too, right? But it's being open to being wrong, right? Being open to failing and part, I mean, you certainly can't receive knowledge or be this precipitate if you're not willing to understand that you may be doing it wrong. And I think that's what's unique as I watch what y'all do. And then listening to, you know, everything we've talked about, I mean, it's applicable to everything. We talk, you talk about fishing, right? And mm -hmm. how much you love it. And we we're talking about fly fishing. I mean, that's hunting, yeah. you know, the same principles y'all teach every day, what you talk about. I mean, it's all same it's those details and that foundation to getting it done mm -hmm. all right we got to hear about the peanut butter sandwich if you can do that in five minutes or less you think you can <laughs> yeah i can get into it <laughs> so a lot of stuff we do is it's training the trainer it's coaching a coach because at the end of the day we're just trying to make you a better teacher because you're going to go back and you're going to regurgitate what you've heard like if you're a, a SWAT team guy and you're going back to your team and you train with us as a, as a singleton, you're going to want to go back and share that knowledge. So we try to harp on the ownership of it. Don't just go back and tell them what I said. Think about it, spin it, and then overlay that on your reality and then go back. Once you own it, like you really own it, now go back and teach it, bring up the collective group. And there are people that are amazing instructors. And there are people who are not. <laughs> there are people who are somewhere in the middle and I think back to coaching styles and um, different teachers I've had over the course of my life. And a lot of details I go into are because I was a hard student. I was getting kicked out of school essentially. And uh, we had to, we had to do a bunch of classes so I can accumulate enough points to graduate high school. So I did a bunch of art. I did home ec. I did sewing. I did everything I could to try to get out of the house early and at 15, maybe 16. I had to do a home economics class. <laughs> um, and we had to do a cooking thing. Had his teacher, I can't remember her name. I can see it in my head, but her name's not important. We had to draw out of a hat and pick a dish we had to cook for a cooking competition. But you had to teach the class and someone else had to make it for you. And then it was entered into the cooking competition. That's what it was. Like, 
okay, so she writes down all these little dishes. It all goes in there, and it's like you're supposed to go back, research a recipe, make it your own, and come back and brief the class. And then one of the students, like, I pick you. You cook my dish. I cook yours. That kind of concept. Beef stroganoff's coming out, and sesame ahi, and, like, I don't know what that is. Like, all kinds of weird stuff. And I reach in, and I swirl. I'm like, peanut butter sandwich <laughs> and like in my mind i'm like oh scorzy like, yes. i'm gonna crush this one so i go back and i write my peanut butter sandwich recipe it's about what you just expect two pieces of bread like what do you need two pieces of bread peanut butter knife there you go it does that's the recipe and it's pretty much what you think take peanut butter Use a knife, spread it on one piece of bread, close them, there's your sandwich. I didn't really put a whole lot of thought into it, and neither did anybody else, but she used mine as the example, and she made my recipe exactly the way I said it. And the way I said it was kind of how you expect, no detail, none. So she did it the exact way that I told her to do it. I was like, get two pieces of bread. She looked on the table, and there was no bread there. You got some bread? Well, no. So you don't have bread. Okay. You got peanut butter? No. She's like, okay. She goes, she gets all the supplies, brings it all up, and then she's like, okay, go. I was like, well, take the knife, put in the peanut butter, and she leans in and she grabs this heaping scoop of peanut butter and dumps it on the bread and smears it across the table, blows through the bread and smears peanut butter on the table. And I kind of looked at her and she flipped over the other piece and did it and tore both pieces in half. And I was like, well, not that much. Takes the same knife, puts in, takes just a tiny bit out and does the same thing on a new piece of bread. I'm like, okay. A little more peanut butter than that, but not as much as the first time. And don't push down on the bread so hard. And this thing went on for like 30 minutes and she's making a mockery out of me. But the whole time I'm looking, I'm like, I don't know what is wrong with this lady or why she cannot make peanut butter sandwich but it's driving me insane she finally broke it down she's like i'm doing what you're telling me to do i need the details like maybe you should tell me to hold a piece of bread with my left hand and with 10 pounds per square inch with this peanut butter with three quarters of the knife covered in peanut butter i do one symmetrical stroke from one edge of the crust to the other to not deform the bread to not tear the bread just enough to coat the bread but to not overlap on the sides now I'm going to go up and I'm going to re-spread and then I'm going to assess. Do I have enough peanut butter to cover the entire piece or do I not? Every little bit of detail, the articulation of the knife and how I bevel it over to make it clean and symmetrical. The entire thing, do I want crust on it? Do I want three pieces? Do I want peanut butter on both sides of the bread? Do I trim crust? Do I cut it at a 45? Do I make a diamond? What do I do? What makes that peanut butter sandwich mine? And what's the detail I put into it? I'm going to make a peanut butter jelly sandwich now. I can make my kids do it. Tell me what you want. I want bananas on it. Do you want them cubed? you want them sliced long ways? Like, how do you want it? Give me the details, every little bit of it, so when I make it, I know why. Like, they won't know. They yeah. won't know you have to hold that bread with your left hand, smear it with the right. They won't know the poundage you need. They won't know you have to release one pedal to get the cycle to go. They don't know. And they'll sit there for 45 minutes and you'll ruin their entire learning experience if you don't tell them. 
help them make a peanut butter sandwich. And that's the wow. level of detail yeah, that I was opened up to. Yeah, like at 15 years old, like that's the one thing that, that shaped me. Like when I go back to it, it's like that peanut butter sandwich set the tone for knowledge transfer. Like the level of detail in that sandwich, like it changed me. And I kind of just overlapped that to everything else. Like at the end of the day, when I get confused or I just, I don't know, I go back to that. Make him a peanut butter sandwich, man. Yeah, wow. that's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that, that equates to everything. If you want to do it right and you want to teach somebody or do it yourself, right? Yeah. Got to give them details, man. Like they matter. Like if you want it to become a, a transferable thing, you've got to understand the why. Because most people don't. Yeah. Like they won't be able to put two and two together. They don't have the experience to overlap to, to understand the why. Yeah. So the little details you give them, like it saves them, man. Sees a lot of people. Awesome. Wow. Well, that kind of sums it all up. Yeah, it? man. Thank you all so much. Yeah, no, dude. This yeah. is great. Thoroughly no. enjoyed it, guys. That yeah. Was great. yeah. Had a blast. Always good having you guys in. Appreciate it. Dude, I appreciate all this gear. Yeah, I'm man. Forward to it. I can't wait to see y'all knocking down some big whitetails up here yeah. in Virginia. <laughs> That's what I'm looking forward to. You guys got the cameras ready to see a grown man cry getting his first bow? Yes, sir. <laughs> do it. We need to go check that out. No, oh, do we do? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we'll have to go downstairs. Get um, yeah, get some. We'll tell everybody to come upstairs, and I'll be downstairs shooting. Yeah, we'll shoot out the catwalk and kill us. <laughs> hey, Perfect. Yeah. Elevated for sure. Yeah, start elevated. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, cool. Good deal. Nice. Nice.